We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Greetings and welcome back to the podcast, Gator Nation. We are presented by BetUS. I'm Alan Williams. I'm here with James DiVirgilio. We're going to talk all about that big Gators win down in Tampa and get you ready for the big, bad Bama who's rolling into town. But it was a fun Gators win, a lot of action. I'm excited to talk about it. James, how about you? I'm very excited. I was in the state of Washington completing a 21-mile hike with some friends on an RV trip, and we were at this hot spring, and I could only see portions of the game. So I saw very little of it live. I watched all of it, of course, multiple times on the film breakdown afterwards on the All-22. Got every angle, got every situation. But as you and I are going to talk about, Alan, it's different when you watch the game already knowing the result and you're watching plays than it is when you experience it in real time. And judging by our Twitter account and some of the messages that I received, Despite the score at times, there was obviously a lot of frustration, perhaps, in some camps, and then a lot of excitement in others, and really this game seemed to be chock full of everything. So I can't wait to discuss it, but first, as always, if you like the content on this podcast, follow us on social media, check out our YouTube channel where I break down each week's game, typically on a Monday or Tuesday. If you're listening to this on Monday night, it has not come out yet, but it will come out late Monday or early to late Tuesday. Uh, Become a patron on Patreon where you can support Alan and I's efforts here at the Gator Nation Football Podcast to bring you analytical content each and every week on Florida. As always, shout out to B-Red, our our producer, if you will, and editor, producer B-Red, who gets us ready for these podcasts. And then for Bama Shane, who's indispensable. Uh, Really, the reason those YouTube videos happen is because he edits the videos for me. It takes a lot of time just to be able to record the videos, get the plays together, put everything up there, and then to actually edit the video and put it on YouTube would take even that much more time. So thanks to him for making yeah. that happen. And B-Red, it's fun to have him back on the Google Doc, his comments. So you'll, you'll hear a couple of those again this week. So good to have him back in the mix too. Yeah, and B-Red, if you're not familiar, played for Florida. Uh, actually played for Mullen, still has some friends in the team, so he's well-connected uh, on a wide variety of levels to the college football world. And as far as patrons go, big week for new patrons. I'm really excited to welcome a whole bunch of new people to the family. In the small dono category, we have Adam White. We have David Dupuy, who comes in with an annual small dono. We have Chris, 
I love the single name guys. Artist name is Chris. We have Jack Zoldos, John Scott with an annual small dono, Lance the Farmer Legscrong with an annual dono. I love people coming in with their own nicknames. Love it's great. The creativity. And then Gators won. Yeah, back. As well. On the medium dono, we have RC, who's back for some more action, upgrading himself with an annual medium dono. A level up again from Patrick Moore, who, as long as the Gators win each week, are going to wind up getting mentioned every week because he's leveling up his dono. He cracked the code there. He did, right? David Lee. We now have, I think, three David Lees, all different, I believe, supporting the show. Is this the basketball player? Not the basketball player yet, to my knowledge, but perhaps one day. Okay, maybe one day. And then we have Mike Goducks Schultz. Big win for Oregon, which we'll talk about later on in the show. Coming in with a large annual dono, we have uh, Jim DeCesaro. Trask Donos. Trask Donos still alive. If you want to support our boy Kyle Trask, you can. And Brett Russ coming in hot for that one. And then a new category. Derek Taylor comes in with the AR-15 dono. It was inevitable. It was inevitable. Derek requested it. And he said, yes, of course, we were going to do it. But now that you specifically gave a $15 dono and requested it, there it is. And an XL dono from Kyle Moyles or Moles. Or perhaps something different. As always, my last name is Di Virgilio. I try my best to get your names correct, and I know I frequently get them wrong. And Alan, we had Double O sitting on the throne for just a matter of five days. And then Constantine, who has a last name that I love to try and pronounce, but is a lot of vowels and a lot of consonants, and he didn't get back to me as to whether or not how to pronounce it or what it is. So I'm going to leave it now out of respect to Constantine. But Constantine has taken over the throne in a coup. And what a great name to be sitting on the Gainesville. Emperor Constantine. Uh, yeah, yeah, the Gator Nation football podcast throne here in Gainesville. So Emperor Constantine rules. Double O now slides out into second place, if you will. Uh, and as we mentioned, of course, anyone can take over the throne. It's just a blind bidding process. And if your dono is the highest, then you're on the throne. So long live Constantine. We'll see what happens here in the future. And obviously, Constantine, I know you're listening. Feel free to send us the pronunciation guide Please. to your last name so we can give you full love. But out of respect for your last name, we will pause uh, until next time. All right, Alan, read off uh, some of our Dono legends. All right, a couple former kings here. Double O, Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stash Me, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marsalisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Hondrick, James Truett, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Cooper and Kylie Craig, Mark Rubenstein, and the number one fan himself, Tyler Rummery. All right, James, get us into the game here. Talk to us about what happened. Yeah, T-Rum. I like that T-Rum, as we used to call him, Tyler Rummery, uh, is now last on that list. It's great each and every week. All right, so the Gators win 42-20. As is our history, Alan, we're pretty close to the score. In fact, you were very close. You had 42-10. I had 45-10. A couple of garbage time, kind of late scores there. But we were more or less on it. We'll talk about whether or not we thought the style of the game reflected what we thought. Keys to the game for me were the split in snaps between Richardson and Emory Jones. I wanted to see more snaps for Richardson. Of course, that did not happen. And I wanted to see us gain 350-plus yards of rushing, which we did, gaining 363. You were looking for chunk plays in the passing game, which clearly we saw. Yes. And you were also looking for some turnovers on defense. We got one. I don't know if that's going to fit what you were feeling for that category. 
And I wanted our defense to be aggressive, which we started out very conservative and actually became quite aggressive as the game went on. So a lot of stuff to unpack there. Uh, All in all, this game, for a second game against an overmatch opponent, Allen, as has been the history for our, our, our podcast, offers actually a lot to dissect. A lot of stuff was happening in this football game. Yeah, it was fun to watch. A lot of big plays on offense, obviously, and the defense still, despite, you know, for the most part, statistically dominant performance, still some stuff to look at and talk about. Um, but for the second week in a row, the headline story is Anthony Richardson. We're going to read his stat line here in a minute. It's absurd. <laughs> he only played 11 snaps, but he's the guy by far that everyone is discussing. Um were you as impressed with him last this week as you were last week? Yeah, even, even more so, more, probably. Even more so. And it's really funny. You know, we put out the YouTube video. I had mentioned last season that during the Oklahoma game, something happened that led me to believe that that AR could be a really good quarterback. Well, that was just a little tiny clue there. One little play, but that tells you a lot about how someone sees the field. Of course, none of us, Alan, had any idea how good of a runner he could be, other than that he was chronicled as absolutely the most athletic guy in the team. That's something we've all witnessed. So what was neat for me is I came back from a non-cell phone area in Olympic National Park. I mean, as far as you can get in the continental U.S. away from Florida. And I pull up the stat line and I see what you just mentioned, which is this absurd AR is the leading passer in the game with three passes. And he's also the leading rusher in the game. And then I find out that he he hurt his hamstring. And so it was this like wave of emotion, like, oh, man, this is amazing. I can't wait to see this. Followed by, oh no, like what happened? Followed by our group text coming through where I'm getting the classic Rick Kingsley things we can have and nice things in two separate bubbles on a Venn diagram. And I'm thinking, what is going on? How bad is this? But all in all, as I watched the game on film, obviously, Alan, I mean, Anthony Richardson is a generational talent. And it's clear when the announcers, and having done some announcing, I now know what they tell you in the truck are like are saying on a broadcast this quickly about this guy he's a very special talent and it's evident to seemingly everyone and we'll talk about maybe who it's not evident to or who (laughs) who perhaps is is burying their head in the sand but remarkable remarkable stuff and really i think fascinating to see a guy with his mentality gainesville guy local guy humble supporting all of his teammates supporting Trask, supporting emery Seems like a, a throwback guy. I don't want to use that term. I don't know him personally, but certainly this guy seems like a guy who loves football, loves his teammates, loves being a Gator, and also happens to have absurd amounts of talent oozing from his legs and his arm that he's just beginning, I think, to figure out what he's capable of. Yeah, supremely impressive. Every time he touches it, has that kind of Michael Vick... Lamar Jackson, Percy Harvin. Like, you know, the thing that I loved about Percy is that every time he touched it, you felt like he was going to do something special. Even if it was just a three-yard gain, you are you kind of sat up and you got a little jolt of electricity. And the same is true for him. I, I don't know what he's going to do. Maybe he's just going to throw a five-yard out or something. But he's he takes the – here's the beautiful thing about these guys is what I'd say for him as well. He takes the mundane or the routine play 
and makes it special. So even if he messes up, like Dan has said, you know, he misses a read, misses a check or whatever, even when he technically might have not done the right thing, it still ends up being spectacular. And now Dan said that in a negative way. People think he did something spectacular. Well, he kind of did. And so once he learns what he's supposed to do all the time, that's going to be an extra level. So in some sense, it's revealing that he still isn't obviously a polished guy. But I don't really know even how to explain it, the jolt you get when he's in the game. Like if you're not watching him live. And so you didn't watch it live. I did. So we talked about this. You kind of miss the emotions, the highs and lows of the game. It is so funny. Every time he's in there, I was watching with a bunch of people. Um, and every time he's in the game, everyone shuts up. And there's some people who are kind of chatting and stuff, but for the people who are, are paying attention, you just kind of are, you can't take your eyes off him. And <clears throat> when he pulled up with the hamstring, I stood up and yelled, no, so loudly that my two-year-old daughter kept saying, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? And I had to kind of calm her down that everything was fine. Nobody, nothing really bad happened, except for something really bad happened. Because for a split second, I was like, oh, maybe it's a cramp. And then I saw the replay and him grabbing that telltale spot. Uh, at the top of the leg there and hamstrings. We'll, we'll talk a lot about his hamstring, I'm sure, but that's just a, such a terrible injury. You live with that for a while till it gets better. And I was so bitterly disappointed that we might be denied him against Alabama or against the next few games or until he really gets right. Now, it seems like it's not as bad as it could be, but still, it was such a bummer in the game to watch him pull up like that. Yeah, from all things that we're hearing on Monday, and of course this will develop throughout the week, it's that the hamstring is about as good as it could be given how it looked. However, it's hard to imagine that it's good. Right. Best case news with the hamstring is still not great news. But the Florida staff seems to be standing by the fact that this is no big deal, relatively speaking. We'll find out again. By well, the time this you're is, listening to this, yeah. this is not the podcast to get your up-to-minute information on health issues. But I think what you said is the key. Perhaps all of Gator Nation saw that moment live. I experienced it live by by seeing your text message and my heart sank and I didn't get to watch those scenarios. And so if I'm feeling that, because of course I've been invested in AR, I, I think that he has a tremendous skill set. But to watch that live, the height of, man, this guy is an absolute video game. He's so good. And then, oh no, our biggest game of the season is coming up and also multiple games are coming up. And is he out for six weeks and what's happening? And why does this happen to us at Florida? Why is this Will Greer testing positive for Ligandrol? Why is this a million different things where it's like we get the ball rolling with the quarterback and then things don't go that way? I don't know. But, Alan, you did experience the game live. And, again, judging by some of the messages I mentioned already and some of the things that we got sent to us, what was this like, this game in particular, as a football game, offensively, defensively? Watching it live, did it feel great and not so great? And then, I mean, what were some of the touch points? And, again, a lot of you watched this live, but... What did it feel like watching it live? Well, one, knowing that USF is an overmatched opponent, you want to see the team excel, and they were doing that in the first half on both sides of the ball. Not perfect, but completely in command. And you had some nice throws from Emory, two really, really great throws. So the kind of stuff that goes, oh, maybe this is why they want to keep putting him in the game. He can make a throw like this. 
defense playing well, and then just completely bogs down in the third quarter with the turnovers, with uh, just some lackluster play. Richardson going out with the injury where it just kind of really changes the tone a little bit from, man, this is fun. We're ready. We're going to, all the conversation is going to be about how much Richardson plays this week. So like, that kind of leaves you feeling a little bit like, I don't know. Um, so that was at least for me, the kind of the up and down nature of it. Um, obviously it's not the most high profile game, but still more on the line than the typical, maybe directional school. Uh, South Florida does have some talent. They're not just nobody. They're not very good, obviously. Um, actually they're quite bad. Um, but, you know, it's on the road. You want to play well. You want to get ready for Bama. So let me ask you this. Uh, do you feel like, well, let me preface this with, the kind of cliche is that the teams make their biggest improvement from week one to week two, right? Week one, you're working out the kinks. You're playing a lot of new guys. You think you're ready, and then you go, okay, these are things we weren't actually ready for, whether it's communication things from the sideline, getting lined up, like we saw last year or this year. It might be some other things that, New guys, new situations. Do you think that the Gators made a significant improvement from week one to week two? There were a lot of improvements from week one to week two that showed up on film for sure. As a team, it's interesting. As a team, maybe not so much, oddly enough. It's weird to say that. A lot of individual player improvements, and we're going to talk about that, across the board on offense and defense. But... The team itself doesn't feel like it was drastically better than it was against FAU, despite the fact that we were up 35-3, to despite the fact that Emory looked better at times. But I think a lot of that has to do with something that's been plaguing really the Dan Mullen era at Florida, is there's a, there's a, there's a leadership issue, which we're going to lean into, which I think is affecting the entire team. Uh, and it's done it before, and, and we're going to talk about it more. But as a spoiler alert, that's what I see. So I see significant individual improvement that I haven't always seen with Florida in certain scenarios. I see some spectacular players like Anthony Richardson. I see some positive signs with what happened on the O-line and who we tried out. A lot of positives, but I think maybe the best answer here, Alan, is the improvements are going to show themselves against Alabama, and a lot of it, not surprisingly, has to do with who the coaching staff chooses to play. And I think that's why I can't definitively say what's our improvement. A lot of staffs would switch one guy for another and that'd be your starter or you'd, you'd have a new offensive lineman um, you know, scenario. But with Florida, we just don't know. They try a lot of guys. Things are there. There's stuff I see. But a football team is, is, is the entire roster working together for what's best for the team. And that at times seems to be Florida's biggest weakness is actually allowing that to happen and not dealing with forced rotations or playing the wrong guy or whatever. So I suppose until I see that occur, I have to take any improvement I see with individual players a little bit in check. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I would say I saw some improvement in terms of consistency. Like the team looked, they're a little more confident, a little more put together, a little less sloppy. Um, but when you contextualized opponent it's hard to say how much right it wasn't drastic because part of Florida played fairly well the first week it wasn't like it was abysmal and this week it looked great there um 
but nothing none of it really means anything like you said till you play a really good opponent now we're we're taking as big of a leap in competition as possible the the stair stepping up is no longer it's just the scaling the mountain it's not like we get to play like tennessee next or something like that uh so they'll certainly be tested for every inch this coming up week it'll be really interesting okay uh are you ready to talk about the game itself let's do it um why don't you read off some of the statistics there for the offense uh, impressive day statistically for yeah, sure. yeah very impressive day two days in a row where the rushing stats stand out of course we had 600 and ominous 666 yards of offense that's the real number 363 rushing 303 passing of course a lot of that coming from richardson's couple of plays 8.3 yards per rush florida is now you know top two or three in the country in that kind of category two picks which which we'll talk a lot about that four for 12 on third down we'll talk more about that Emory finishes 14 of 22 for 151 with one touchdown and two picks. And of course, the aforementioned Anthony Richardson, three for three, 152, two touchdowns, four carries, 118, one touchdown, doing something even Tim Tebow never did, which is rush for back-to-back 100-yard games. He's also one of the few Gators that's had a 100-yard rushing, 100-yard passing plus game. I mean, ridiculous if you look at his averages, Alan, I don't care who you're playing against in yards per pass and yards per rush. It's it's a comedy. We said last week that he's the guy you build in Madden and you give him all 99s. And that's just more and more true after this week. Uh, but the offense itself had a great statistical day. And without the two Emory interceptions and the goal line stop, where again, Anthony Richardson comes out of the game with a helmet issue, which we'll just dis- dissect in a minute. The offense was going to be nearly flawless in that regard with, you know, you're not going to score every single time, especially with some limitations we have. So I thought all in all, the offense could have been great. It wound up being good. The comforting thing is that what we knew to be true remains true. There wasn't a surprise. Uh Uh-oh, this looks ugly. Uh Uh-oh, this is bad. Florida's offense seems to be predictably deficient in some things. With the potential of a quarterback change, as we've talked about, changing the entire dynamic now with a a massive hamstring injury lingering over everything. But I think on film, a lot of good things that we're going to get into here that I've seen, especially regarding individual players. So a a pleasing day, minus some of the knowns. You see like, you know, the rushing yards pile up and pile up and pile up. Another really impressive day. Um, you know, we are not big believers in balance, but, you know, almost the same yardage rushing and passing there. Um, so able to not just your, you're not an only run the ball team, right? You're also able to throw it competently, um, especially from one quarterback, big plays, a lot of chunk yardage. So that did happen. Um, yeah, I think the offense, you know, if you're just looking at the the stat lines, you're like an effective day for what they were trying to do. The profile and the personality identity of this team is that they're going to run the ball and they want to run the ball. And they were able to do it even when USF didn't want them to do it. So we didn't spend any real time talking about what USF wanted to do, but in the game there, they were really aggressive and trying to stop us from the run. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, they loaded up the box much like you would expect. And something we said in the preseason, Alan, was could Florida run against teams that were inferior, even if they 
we're loading up the box. And check and check, in the first two games, Florida has proven to be able to run against a team that has eight men in the box playing cover zero with no safety behind. And Florida did that. So that's really encouraging for Florida's games against SEC opponents that are not the premier ones. Because if you can run at a competent level, five yards to carry, you're going to win those games. So that's significant. That's perhaps the most significant thing that's come out of these first two games for me. And that was a big question. Secondarily, USF came out, I mean, absolute just reckless abandon. We don't think you could pass at all. We have zero respect for you to throw the ball to anyone, and we are going to bring everyone to stop the run. Uh, They played a lot of cover zero. They had no fear that Florida could punish them. Of course, we did wind up punishing them, but it kind of shows you what teams are seeing on film from Emory is we can't let them run because, you know, they run really well, but perhaps they don't complete enough passes to make us pay on the back end. And I think that's where things get interesting with how the interceptions occurred and what went down. But all in all, I actually liked, I liked what USF did. I think it's beneficial that Florida played two teams that really tried hard to stop the run. They're going to face an entirely different challenge against Bama. Uh, But, you know, all in all, USF gave Florida a lot of aggressive run looks for the offensive line to deal with, and they were able to handle the task against inferior opponents. And that's that's great news. Take that the most away from this game when it comes to the offense. Yeah, and I you know, I think excelling at what you want to excel at, even when the other team knows you want to do it, that's good. You're, if you can play to your strengths, right? Obviously now you have to play left-handed against the best teams because they're going to limit you doing your preference. Can you do the other thing? That remains to be seen. All right, we've talked about a lot of the O-line, their development. They blocked well last week in a lot of scenarios, clean pockets. Same thing this week. Um, Saw a lot of holes for the running backs. You saw a lot of um, clean pockets to pass from. A little bit of pressure here and there. Some of the same kind of faces giving up some pressures. Uh, they played a lot of different guys. We're going to talk about that in a second, but um, did you feel like the O-line continued? I don't know if you want to say improvement, but well, maybe you do. I won't put the words in your mouth. Uh, they looked good last week. They continue to look good to you again this week. They did. They looked great. And minus the right side of the line, which has some struggles, you know, Reese, especially, I still think DeLance. Uh, yeah. Reese on, got on, beat a couple times on film. Just going to come out and say it on film. Delance is offering nothing above replacement in the run game. So there was a thought that he's a good run blocker. Nothing on film would suggest that he's a completely average run blocker at best. Florida's leaning into that heavily by running left all the time to the lineup. You preferred strongly last year. We talked about ad nauseum having Guraj and then Ethan white playing and they're doing fantastic. But what I did like, what I did like is we have been imploring to see Hevesy play a bunch of guys. We begged for it last year. Please let me see these guys that are here to see on film if they're good enough. And one of those guys who got a lot of shine was Michael Tarquin. And he did well. In fact, I'm ready to say now that he should be the starting right tackle. He played a variety of spots. I thought he handled himself very well. He's a much, much better pass blocker than DeLance. I mean, a much better pass blocker. And I would challenge you on film to find a significant difference between him and DeLance in the run blocking game. It's an overmatched opponent, but it doesn't matter. It would show up. You can see what our really successful run blockers are doing. When Ethan White's in the game, you can see a boost of run blocking from him. You can see that level. 
So I thought it was nice to now have evidence of the variety of linemen Florida could march out there, which is going to be a big question in the Bama game, is do we just go right back to the old hat and stick with it for a long time if it's not working, or do we attempt to give someone else a chance? So I was very encouraged that we finally got to lay eyes on some of these guys. Well, and there were a lot of combinations that occurred in that game. And and quite frankly, despite the mixing and matching, the offensive line consistently performed pretty well, which is which is good. Again, way overmatched, but something Florida has been unable to do. Yeah, and they played a lot, a lot of guys at the very end, which they should. But there was a Delance injury. This may, may be a hallmark for this coaching staff. Their hand was potentially forced. I don't know. We don't know how injured Delance is. It looks like he's probably going to be available this week. But it was nice to see it in game action. Can he do it? All right, that at least gives you some kind of other direction to go for the offensive line that they're not stuck playing this lineup no matter what, because as bad as Delance is, he's still better than everybody else. That doesn't seem to be the case, at least in a small sample size. Um, okay. We talked about tempo last week. The, the offense using tempo, going fast. They didn't. We didn't really do that very much this week. Um, do you wish you had seen more of that? Or is that just meaning like, we saw it, we don't really need to do it again, we're going to employ it later on? If I had to guess, this coaching staff is testing out the variable things they wanted to get to before Bama. So can we put on film that we've run tempo? Can we show our guys what this looks like? Can we clean up who's slow to get to the line or who's not getting the call? Can we run, and this happened a lot in this game, can we break the huddle and then change the play? which I don't think was being done specifically for USF. I think it was being done for Alabama. Let's get Emory in. Let's call the play. Look to the sideline. Change the play. So that's a lot of Are dress rehearsal. picking up the signals, mm-hmm. like, things like that. Yeah. A lot of dress rehearsal stuff to make sure you get that right, and that's what you use these first two games for. Uh, so I thought Florida did a nice job being able to go through all of those things. thought that was important, again, in prep for the Bama game. And, and I think in general – and we've said this on the offensive side of the ball, aside from the head scratching personnel decisions and the commentary that occurs from, from coach Dan Mullen, the actual tactics and how he uses his players and talent tends to be excellent. We've, I'll just keep saying that because I think a lot of times people think, man, James is a harsh critic of Mullen. I am when it comes to the level of recruiting and when it comes to the level of, of being a, a team leader and decision maker, but not when it comes to how to deploy your team and the modern Dan Mullen mindset, what we call the 2.0, the 2.5, wherever he's going, he's going in a positive direction. I think he keeps showing that he understands the difference between AR and Emery as he should. He employs them well. He's, he's giving them chances to be successful with their skill sets. And that pops out on film significantly as well. And that's one of the reasons why, Alan, I think it's so clear to most people that the real issue with the offense is the quarterback play. And we have one guy who's very unknown, but I would say on film shows way a way higher ceiling and aptitude. And we have one guy who I think at this point in time is very known. Emery is who Emery is. As Dan Mullen says, he can get the team into looks, which he does. I'm sure he's further along than Richardson when it comes to understanding all the concepts, the playbook, being comfortable changing a play when Dan calls it into his headset or hand signaling or whatever. Uh, but as we're going to discuss on those picks and what went wrong, you know, Emery is just very limited as a natural passer and reader of the football field and a processor of information as it comes to playing football. And that is a super ceiling limiter for a quarterback. You just can't beat the best teams with that kind of play. It's not going to happen. Well, let's go ahead and talk about that. 
so there was two interceptions. There should have been a third in the end zone, probably, um, where he threw it into triple or quadruple coverage. Uh, I already mentioned that he made a really beautiful throw to Henderson down the sideline. Made a nice throw to Shorter that I think Shorter maybe ended up dropping. He dropped. Should have right. caught. Really nice ball right. there. So there's some nice balls. That I think better throws this week than we saw out of him last week. Much better. Much better. But the, as you said, the limiting factor is his ability to get the ball out on time. Even the better throws are often still late, still without anticipation. And the interceptions different kinds of ones than we saw last week a little bit, but what, okay, let me ask you this. I I wanted you to get into like why they happened, but first the banner headline, are they bad or very bad? Cause not all interceptions are created equal, right? They're not. And we've discussed this with Trask in the past and other quarterbacks. This is a great question. I think that the right word is they're just, they're just elementary. They're elementary. That's what's troubling. Sometimes a a defense is going to run a really nice play. And you get confused by a zone or a dropper or it's a nice tendency play. And you say, look, you know what? It's hard to play quarterback. But these are generally what you would call a static zone. Someone's going to drop back. You know exactly what kind of zone they're in. You know exactly the read. You've been making these reads every single year. You've been in Dan Mullen's system. It's a simple play. It's an overmatched opponent. And the ball is still coming out late, which tells you that he's not comfortable seeing the field. And then the fact that he's even throwing the ball tells you he's not valuing the ball. So he, he wants to make a play. He's waiting for the play. He's uncomfortable and he's sort of just throwing it, which is actually pretty natural. You either have guys that take sacks. Their natural thought is I'm not going to throw the ball until the guy's wide open. Or you have guys like Emery, who's not going to take a sack pretty much ever. And if he's uncomfortable, he's throwing the football, which is the worst of all. That's how you throw pick sixes, etc. But if you look at all of his interceptions year to date, there's not a single one that's like, that makes sense. They're all like, ooh, if I was coaching a sophomore in high school, I would say, hmm. What did you see there? Like they gave you everything you thought you'd see pre-snap and then post-snap you got everything you wanted, but you threw it there. Those are tough to answer. And I think that's the problem with Emory Jones. And that's what we've highlighted on film now every year he's been playing for Florida. And that's and that's not to disparage him. I know he's trying his hardest. I'm sure he's spending countless hours in the film room. By all accounts, he wants this badly. But there's something that he's just not right now able to gather as a quarterback. And and as you said, his interceptions on film are basic and simple. He has time. He has other places to go with the football. And he's just making the wrong decision. And he's making the wrong decision and then throwing really easy interception balls. You can make the wrong decision and throw a 50-50 ball. But he's throwing automatic interception balls. And that is obviously troubling if you think about having to play the better teams in the SEC, turnovers are a significant part of winning. Significant, significant part. And they're only asking him to throw 25 times a game, 20 times a game. Most of those throws are easy. They're east-west throws. They're simple throws. They're one-route throws. But every time they try to give him, here's a two-option read, here's a three-option read, here's a high-low, most of the time, it's not comfortable. Now, on the, on the YouTube breakdown, you'll see in the first half, he actually made a lot of improvements from one week to the next. So I do want to say that I thought Emery improved significantly from week one to week two with what he put on film. And I'm sure he wishes the third quarter didn't happen, Alan. But the bottom line is it did happen. And that's still a heavy part of who Emery's putting on film. So take both of them. Long, significant strides from Emery in his first half throws. 
He made some better reads, including a high-low smash we highlighted the week before where he struggled and made the wrong one. He did the right one, did the check down, threw a great go route for a touchdown, threw some of those balls on time. His timing was better. But all in all, when he faces a team where these windows are tight and they're coming at him and you have to make decisions in a split second, there's nothing on film to indicate he's ready for that yet. And Dan Mullen knows this. So if AR can't go this week, I think you're going to have to see an extremely safe game plan to not turn the ball over. And how Dan Mullen comes up with that will be anyone's guess. But that's where Emery is, I think, right now. You just can't drop back on third and seven and say, here's a three-read option, make the right play. He's not there yet. Well, especially there's not been heavy pressure in his face where he's forced to make a split decision he didn't see a guy. And these are USF defenders breaking pretty far across the field to come to these balls. Um, they're just, you know, reading reading him completely, just eating his lunch there. I mean, they're, it doesn't even look that difficult for them. And that's where I would put in the category very bad. As you said, these are elementary plays. These are interceptions that you just can't throw. There's times to be risky. We talked about a lot with Trask. He probably should throw five or six interceptions because he should be pushing the ball down the field. We should be very aggressive. The amount of times that we're throwing the ball, it's just going to happen. But again, these aren't even the tipped pass kind of variety where it's like, that's not his fault. Or aggressive, or like you said, they did something really confusing. The percentage of times that he's throwing the ball, either it's getting intercepted or it should get intercepted, is really, really high, especially from a clean pocket. Man, if he's in the game long enough and they let him do enough, he might have a six-interception game. That's And you can never, ever win doing that. So that's the problem for me. Um, like you said, I would say I saw improvement as well. So he's, I don't want a good, bad split him. He's not all bad. It's not everything he does is bad, passing the ball. But his the negatives are so deeply negative that it's hard to like burrow out of that. Like you said, if he's throwing balls away and it's like, okay, we're just not doing anything risky. If it's not there, we just he just runs it. That's actually preferable. Now, I don't want a guy like that either, but you can't turn the ball over like every fifth pass that you make. No, and especially not at his stage of development. Right. He hasn't played a lot as far as a starter in games, but if you've had as much time as he's had with Dan Mullen, and I'll give you Kyle Trask, who didn't play at all, if you know how to read defenses, you come into the game, and it's like you practiced all the time. That's a cover three. That linebacker is going to wind up buzzing to the flat, which is what happened on the interception. He's going to carry my hitch, my hitch route for a second. He's going to go to the flat. That's exactly what he's supposed to do. So quarterbacks are then trained. I read cover three, the corner bails. I know that linebacker is going to go to the flat. All I do is look at the flat and throw the curl route. But Emery will take the snap, look at, and it's hard to tell who he's looking at. We've talked about his shifty eyes. He's too quick off the safety. He's too quick to come to where he wants to go. And typically defenders know this. If his head turns, he's going to go where he's looking. And so that defender who's leaving the interior part of the field, Alan, as you mentioned, he's just going to the flat because he's supposed to go to the flat. He's not even making an NFL-level tendency play. I'm going to leave my responsibility. He's doing exactly what he's supposed to do, and Emery's throwing the ball right to him. And this has happened two weeks in a row now. And again, yeah, that, these are not things you have to have exactly. game experience for. You don't have to have game experience for that. This is something you should have seen a million times in reps and features. It just tells me that he just doesn't have what it takes right now to be an SEC-level quarterback. Now, 
there are plenty of guys with Emory's skill set who could play a lower level of quarterback and do just fine. He's a talented guy. There's just no way to be a film analyst, Allen, and not say what we're seeing on film. A lot of times that seems harsh. It seems difficult. But if I'm coaching Emory, what I'm saying on this podcast is the same thing I'm saying to Emory is, look, if you want to play at the SEC level, you have got to be able to make these kind of processing decisions. And if you can get there, you will be able to play. But if you're putting on film that you can't beat a static zone and that you're throwing picks two times a game with only 20 or so throws a game, that's a 10% interception rate on your actual passes. That's just not going to work. And, and again, that's not harsh. That's what coaches are supposed to do. You build a guy up by telling him, here's your weaknesses. If you want to reach this level, if you want to play in the NFL, if you want to do this, you have to master this. And so I want that to be clear. Like when I'm analyzing, it's not a personal thing. It's not a Emery's terrible, he's trash. That's not true. Emery's trying his best. He's doing all that he can. But on film right now, it's just clear his weaknesses are not an SEC caliber starting quarterback. Yet despite the fact he runs the ball very well, he has a very strong arm, he can make some good throws, consistency is what makes a quarterback an SEC level winning quarterback. Consistency or extreme talent, Peyton Manning style, where you're throwing a lot of picks because you're taking a lot of 50-50 ball chances, maybe 55-45 against you chances that are calculated that you'll eventually recognize when to chance. Emery's not throwing those balls. Those balls are not in Emory's game. These are just, as you mentioned, not SEC level interceptions right now. And that's not going to magically go away. That's the problem. It's not a five-day fix that he just learns how to do this. I love what you said there. Someone was asking me about this. These guys aren't making like hero plays or they're just running free. We're like, why was that guy there? He shouldn't have been there. That that guy's that's his responsibility is to run down there, and you got to know he's running down there. Okay, we've talked about that a lot. Um, let's talk about some more good things. The running game excelling. We talked about offensive line. Let's talk about the running backs. Pierce always looks great. Only a few carries. Uh, Davis looks great. Everybody who's touching the ball looks dangerous. The carry, we talked a lot about the carry distribution last week that Malik Davis had way more carries. That evened out. Everyone was roughly the same. I think Naquan Wright actually had the most, but it was all within a few carries. Um, thoughts on the running backs as a group? I think Pierce continues to be the best running back that we have. Agreed. Not only is he the best on film, he's by far the best statistically. It does bother me, and bother is the right word, that he, he gets five touches in a game. Now, it's USF, and it wouldn't bother me if I knew that he was going to get 12 touches against Alabama. But I don't know that. He might get five touches. And to me, we have a great stable of running backs. Pierce is the best one. This, this like, I don't, I I just don't like it. He doesn't have to get the ball 90% of the time. That's not even what happens in the NFL. But if, if this guy has separated himself from these other guys, which again, film says he has, he has got to be getting the majority of carries. He can catch the ball to the backfield. He's a phenomenal runner. He basically breaks every first tackle that comes to him his game is fantastic it's a he's a great set of skills so i would like to see that trend in that direction that's my main thought on distributions of course emery carried the ball you've got it noted here 13 times is that too many times no part of running an offense that involves a lot of zone reading is taking the read and usf was kind of bent on stopping the running backs they were allowing as you saw the quarterbacks to run the ball that was something they were going to be okay with they were crashing down hard so we did it, and that's something Florida has to be okay with. So I think 
they weren't forcing Emery carries outside of the red zone, which we'll talk about that in a minute um, because that's important. Emery's red zone struggles are very evident when we get down there. Uh, but all in all, that's my big narrative is I want to see Pierce taking the the majority of the carries and then a timeshare between there behind him situationally because I just think he deserves it because he gives the team the best chance to gain yards. I would agree with that. And I want to make that point. That's a lot of carries for Emory. If you're having design runs where this is, you know, running these quarterback powers or whatever. Yeah. If the team is making you keep it, then you keep it. And he's certainly dangerous. You know, a lot of those are a lot of the carries that end up being like two, three yards, you know, which are fine, but it feels like every time we're able to get the ball to a running back, we're getting some extra stuff, which last year wasn't the case. Every time we felt like we handed the ball to a running back, it was like, that was three yards. And maybe if we keep it, we're going to get a bigger chunk. Um, I wonder if that's going to start to shift the course of the season, if we're going to see teams play UF differently. If Richardson is in there, you almost have to play him, where then maybe we don't have a lot of Richardson carries because they're just like, yeah, we're not going to let you run the ball. We're going to send two guys at you. So that might shift, but... It's interesting that they're choosing to play, make the quarterback run the ball, which I guess over time you're thinking maybe we'll wear him down a little bit. Um, so the Gators lead the nation in rushing. Does that do anything for you? That's that's impressive, right? If you want to rush the ball and you're the best in the country at doing it and a really nice yards per carry to go along with that. Yes, it does something for me in that it answered that primary question we asked. Can Florida run the ball against inferior opponents? Check. That's what it tells me. It does not tell me anything beyond that. We have played two. One team in FAU that actually has a decent defense and another team in USF that has a horrific defense. But both times we ran the ball very well. However, both times we have 75-plus yard runs from Anthony Richardson. Does that skew the rushing yards? Of course it does. He's a freak. But but if he's a part of your offense, it's not skewed. Correct. It's just what it's it does. what he does. And that's what I was going to say. That's not magic or luck. That's the benefit of having a Percy Harvin-like guy. That's what happens. That's the Urban Meyer. You have to have these special players to win, which I totally agree with. No matter how good you are schematically, you got to have guys like Richardson who looks like a grown man playing against peewee guys. In fact, if you've ever watched peewee football clips... Typically, there's one kid that's just absolutely head and shoulders better than everyone else. And there's 11 guys trying to tackle this one kid. Oddly enough, that's what it looks like when Richardson's running the ball against college athletes. And USF and FAU, these guys are athletic guys, Alan. He just looks like that. So at any rate, it does something for me. I feel good about it. I do not think Florida is going to lead the nation in rushing by the end of the year. For a lot of factors, that's hard to do for any SEC team, first of all. And second of all, Florida's going to have to pass the ball more adequately. One-dimension running is not going to work against the better teams in this league. What does this do for you, though, the fact that Gators are Not much, but I think I would echo a lot of your sentiments that they're successful at what they want to do, and which is a flip from last year being able to run the ball, which talked about a lot last week. Um, Let's talk about who stood out on film. I want to talk about Copeland who I've been low on of not being impressed by him. This is what you want from him. You want the huge plays. You want him dangerous and aggressive down the field, going and getting the ball, beating coverage, being fast and physical. I mean, I would want more from a wide receiver, but that's what I want from him the most. And he had his best game as a Gator 
Correct, he did. And, and obviously it's a huge stat line. But this is what you want out of your premier players against inferior opponents. Again, there are questions to be asked of him against equal talent and even potentially better talent than him. That's where NFL players make their money. We'll see what happens, but a very encouraging step from Copeland. He looked competent. He looked polished. He caught the ball well. He high-pointed the ball. He finished plays. He was open frequently. He got a lot of separation. Uh, I thought Florida on film, one thing that you should all know, as we said last week, a lot of the routes they ran were like so basic. It was like decoy route, decoy route, one route option. Florida ran a much more full route tree against USF, which was an intentional deployment. Uh, to put some things on film. And, and that obviously benefited the receivers. There was way more separation. In fact, on almost every single passing play Florida had, Allen, somebody was wide open. That was not true last week against FAU, and it wasn't because FAU was playing stellar defense. They played adequately. It's because Florida was playing the most basic route tree. So Copeland succeeded when he had a chance. And USF, of course, was reckless abandoning against the run. And that's when a guy like Copeland's going to make you pay. And all in all, Alan, this is why the Dan Mullen strategy of having a running quarterback, especially in college, is so effective. If you can make the numbers the way that Florida makes them, unlike last year where Trask is throwing into eight defender defenses, guys dropping eight, oftentimes Emory was throwing into four versus three. We had three, they had four, or three v three. That's a dream as a quarterback. It makes it much more simple. So I thought that was a big emergence from Copeland and Henderson played well too. True. Yeah. Uh, he had some nice catches run. looks dangerous. Looks, I mean, looks again, dangerous is dangerous for sure. Tons of space out. Like you said, I lots mean, of space. And here's something, I, this is interesting moving forward. We'll, we'll have to kind of keep an eye on this. Copeland has played his best ball when Richardson has been in there because Richardson is able to get him to the ball, the ball in the kinds of places where he is most dangerous. Absolutely. He's running a, a better vertical route tree. And as we break down Alabama, Bama is so vertical nowadays, so vertical. That's one of the reasons why their speed threats, like the Copelands of Alabama, are so dangerous on that team. They're running three-second routes that are basically impossible to cover if they get protection. And Florida's doing something similar, not to the same degree. We don't have the same kind of protection that Bama traditionally has with Copeland. And they're running those deep overs those long developing 40, 50 yard bombs down the field that are stretching you high, low, or it's the old Tim Tebow fake with Anthony Richardson, right? Which is beautiful where right. Copeland is so Love fast that. that if the corner freezes for even just one second, it's a touchdown. And then Richardson is delivering a perfect ball. And now is probably the right time to mention a lot of people were curiously worried, as we said about Richardson's like throwing ability after week one. And we had said, Hey, don't worry about that. He's throwing to guys he probably never throws to. And on top of that, when the receivers are there, he's going to show you what he's capable of. The passes he threw were, and I'm going to say this very sincerely, were perfect. He hits Copeland in dead stride. When he had the whole field to work with, runs in the end zone. Um, same thing when he hits him on the fake Tebow play. Dead stride over the shoulder. Those are perfect passes. And then he makes Allen the play of the freaking game. Yes, I want to the talk about The Patrick Mahomes roll to your left. I mean, every single, and I promise you NFL scouts have already seen that throw. He is, that is a Pat Mahomes moment. That is a number one player in the NFL, highest paid guy, absolute stud. And that's that's our guy, Anthony Richardson, doing the same thing and putting the ball on the money. A incredible throw. Incredible stuff. Great presence. Richardson always keeps his eyes downfield, Allen. He does not look at the rush. Despite being such an athletic guy, he doesn't look at the rushers. 
very high level skill. And then the fact that you can make that throw, very few people on the planet, including guys in the NFL, are capable of making that throw. To put that kind of velocity on the ball with the kind of accuracy you need to fit in that very small window. It was great coverage. Yeah. It's great coverage. I can't believe the guy was covering him that well on that kind of play. That was wild. Phenomenal. That's the stuff that should make your jaw drop. That's super special. It's not normal. I don't care how smart you are as a quarterback. Most guys, myself, others, guys who have played at all levels, Danny Warfel would tell you he would dream of making a throw like that. In fact, that's what he's texting me, is this stuff is unreal. And so I take that and enjoy that. It seems like Allen, and this is where we should give, obviously, Dan Mullen a lot of praise. Dan Mullen selected Dak Prescott. Dak Prescott took over for Mississippi State three or four games into the season. It took Dan a while to bring him in as well, despite the fact that he was coming in and flashing brilliance like Richardson was. Richardson, this is a big statement, has more natural talent than Dak Prescott does. Dak Prescott's a super successful quarterback in the NFL. Kind of defied the odds. Richardson, if he continues progressing the way he's progressing, is not going to be the defying the odds guy. He's going to be the guy. And again, that's ceiling talent. He has to live into that. But that's how excited you should get about this kind of guy being on Florida's roster. Like he's a guy that everybody looks at and thinks, oh no, how many years does he have left at Florida? This guy's a problem. That's what kind of guy he's showing on film. Yeah, so this is the difference. So from the very beginning with a guy like Emery, you're like, you know, I like him. As soon as he throws the ball, you go, ah, you know, not really what I'd want from that play. Oh, that one's okay. Oh, that was pretty good. Ah, ah, ah. Every time he does something, I'm like, wow. Even if it's unsuccessful, I'm like, wow. Uh. I think we talked about this last week. We have such limited info on him. We're like every, we're just gleaning so much, but the play to Weston was in fourth and four, right? Is that a bad throw? Or is that a good throw? Well, I don't know. We haven't seen him do it a ton, but I would say good throw. Cause you see that throw to Copeland, as you said, over the middle on the first touchdown pass. If he just throws him where he has to stand there, he's going to get tackled, but he throws him further open but still in a way that's not dangerous to like incompleting the pass. So that's really encouraging. All right. Enough gushing there over AR. Anybody else that you want to mention standing out on film that we haven't talked about? We talked about most of these guys. I thought DeLance stood out the wrong way again um, before he got hurt or whatever his injury actually is on pass blocking. They brought three. The, I mean, this is sort of the traditional DeLance beater we've chronicled a lot. They bring three, but the defensive end just on hike takes one step forward, then drops back. And they bring a linebacker to replace him. And I mean, it, it is like, it's like Delance has never seen that on film. And they run right past him. And that forces Emory to move off of his spot. Um, that is just a, again, it's a technical skill piece. Like we said, Delance is trying. That's the hardest thing about being an analyst is you feel like, hey, I'm ragging on Delance. He's trying to get this stuff right. But the job of a coach is to say, hey, look, it's not right. We have to make a change here. So I thought that that stuck out. And then. As we mentioned, you know, I think that the takeaways for this one offensively are personnel-based. Pierce needs more carries. Richardson, of course, question mark on the hamstring, but the guy's got to play immediately. He's got to be your starter. you got to have the hard conversation with Emery. This is what my job is. You see what this guy's doing on film. And you tell all your players, if two weeks go by and what Richardson starts putting on film is not good and he all of a sudden deteriorates with his reading ability, the pressure gets to him, then then you have to have another another conversation. Your job is to steward your team uh, but I think personnel-wise, we've seen some good things here. I think we have a potentially top-level SEC running back in Pierce. I think we have the most exciting quarterback, including a guy who we're going to chronicle in Bama 
in Bryce Young, but I think we have a more exciting one in Richardson down the road, right? So there's a lot of things to get really excited about here as a Gator fan, including for this season, despite what happens with Alabama. So that's what I took away from this game. A lot of really exciting things. If there wasn't this hamstring injury, Allen, the sky could be so high for the excitement coming into. But instead, there's this level of, hmm, is he going to play? And if he does play, he's certainly not going to be running the ball 70 yards. So how does that affect things? Okay. You ready to turn to the defense? Let's do it. All right. They give up 188 yards passing, 109 rushing. Uh, USF goes 4 for 4 in the red zone. They're 5 of 12 on third down. The Gators have one interception. I disabuse me of this statement. I think that the defense played well to very well in the first half. Again, contextualizing uh, the opponent. But is that real or is that a mirage? It's funny that you would say that. I would say it's a mirage because I thought in the first half, actually, especially schematically, Florida played very poorly and didn't wind up getting punished for it. Um, In the opening half, all USF did was complete a gazillion passes, convert a bazillion third downs, and drive right down the field. And then the most encouraging thing that I have happened, I've seen happen in the Grantham area, uh, sorry, area, in the Grantham era happened, Alan. There was, a, there was an article that got sent to us about how Grantham was talking about playing more press man. Um, you know, do we have something to do with that? Who knows? It's always fun to think we do. We've been talking about it. But you know what we did? We started playing press man. In fact, you'll see on the YouTube channel, across the board, something I've dreamed of, including Perkins, who I love, at the slot nickel or the star, playing press man as well. Something we've never been willing to do. And you know what? We were really good at it. Aside from a a two-penalty scenario where they got some first downs by that, they pretty much got nothing through a pick against it, had nothing. Our D-line was flying. We looked like an athletic juggernaut of a football team. We're in the first half, soft, easy completions, simple passes, quarterbacks comfortable, opportunities. So they didn't score, Allen. They did score more in the second half, but they scored a lot at the end. I thought, all in all, though, the tactics, and I've been obsessed with this on defense, for the first time in a long time, finally made some sense in the second half of this football game. So that is what I'm taking away from this game. Now, again, we're going to see what happens when it matters. Because all that really matters is what do we do against Alabama? Do we go back to the core tendency? But finally, I think we saw what Florida could be capable of when you play a defense that's more befitting of an athletic team against an inferior team like USF. And they had a world of problem with that. And they did have some success, of course, throwing the ball, especially with, again, you know, they brought in their, their other quarterback who was more of a run-oriented guy. That game was over by then. There were different things happening. But that's what I want to take away. And you'll see it in the YouTube video. But the first half, I thought it was Mirage. I thought USF soaked up time of possession. They drove the ball right down the field. They had easy throw after easy throw. They ran the ball well. Florida did a lot of stupid things with the numbers game. We were, we were uneven on a side. We talked about this last year, Alan. They're converting third and four. Because we have two guys on the left side of your TV screen versus their four guys, and they just they just check to the sideline. They audible to play clearly. The running back switches sides. Florida makes no adjustment, hand the ball off first down. That stuff is maddening. So that stuff still happened. But Mirage, with hope that, hey, maybe, just maybe Perkins, who played a lot, he seems to be the starting nickel, starting star. He got more snaps than Trevez did. Maybe finally. 
we're having a little bit of a of a I don't know a breakthrough. A breakthrough. So I don't this is want what to I say wanted. it's a breakthrough. Yeah, yeah. But I, maybe there was slow your roll there. Um, that's what I want to say. So obviously, if you look at the scoreboard, we're up thirty-five to three. At, so again, in result, you couldn't ask for anything better. Sure. Um, and it again, it comes back to the back end tactics. And again, the divine looks super dangerous. They're getting good push now. The run they were able to run the ball. I think more than we would have wanted them to. Right, especially against a team that got blanked by NC State, who has, you know, I think we'll have a decent defense this year. The linebackers are really interesting. They, on some plays, look like, man, these guys are going to be really great. And other plays, like, what are you doing? And why did you fill that gap? Um, okay, so a little bit more mirage but interesting that you feel like, the second half tactically looked a little bit better because obviously uh, McLean comes in, the game is a little bit over, but I think his quickness gave Florida a little bit of problem, um, especially in some of the RPO stuff. Look, we're very confused on who should be taking who sneaking through the middle of the, you know, the offensive formation. Um, so yeah, a lot of stuff to clean up, but still ultimately, you know, they're scoring again, it's similar to FAU that they're scoring when the game is not in, de- in doubt. So you put less weight on that, even though if you want to see some stuff cleaned up. And I think what what I'm saying is there's individual position groups now that are starting to look good. So overall, we still have Grantham, who obviously I think is proven and during his tenure here not to be a trustworthy strategist. That still seems to be true. But there was a lean in a different direction, check positive. And I also think Wesley McGriff and then Jules Montanar working with the safeties and the corners, you're seeing real improvement from week one to week two. That's what I, let me ask you. So yeah, there's real improvement there. This specific area. So we talked about last year, us dropping into zone, look like we didn't know what we're doing at all. Again, showed some of that same stuff, confusion. Where are you playing? Why are you covering grass here instead of a man? Did that get any better for you this week? It does in certain groups. So I still think, and and this is difficult, so keep in mind, I think this is an opinion. I have to look at the film and see it. Our D-line is is generally exceptional. They fill the right gaps. They do the right thing. No matter who comes in there, they're well coached. I will continue to say that. Our linebacking core, as I have continued to hammer on, is, in my opinion, just not well coached. Now, I don't know if that's Christian Robinson or if that's Grantham, seems like it's Robinson who's a recruiter first. There's a lot of athletes that they flash. A lot of really athletic guys, but they're running around without intelligence. And I don't think they're dumb. But if you look at how other teams' linebackers play, and not just Alabama, I'm talking other good defenses, they put their linebackers in the right starting position. Oftentimes, Florida's linebackers are just not in the right place to start. And I refuse to believe, Alan, that's the linebacker making that choice. And why do I refuse to believe that? Because I look at the secondary and the safeties, who now have new coaches from last year, and they are consistently making improvements on film. And I want to give you the example of Helm. Helm got torched in week one. He was sort of the person I talked about the most, is really struggling, shouldn't play much if he's going to put that stuff on film. He made drastic strides in week two, especially in his press man technique, in his awareness level. Now, he gave up some plays. A lot of those were plays where he was designed to give them up. He's supposed to be playing a soft cover three bail, and they're running underneath route underneath him. I'm not saying that he should start over Marshall. I think Marshall should. But his individual improvement on film was real. It was better. He got better. He took the coaching. He got better. 
The secondary as a whole is way more competent. The safeties are light years more competent. Torrance is proving to be a really capable safety. So what am I saying? I'm saying, once again, I feel like we have enough players on this team that we could be a really good defense. I don't think we're going to be a really good defense because of what you just mentioned. We still struggled in this game to line up correctly. We still struggled in this game to get the play calls in on time. There are multiple plays where we are not ready for the snap. That's inexcusable. It keeps happening. At the linebacker position, despite I think having some real talent there, we frequently cover certain teams' formations just the wrong way. And it doesn't matter who's playing. And that's why I say that's not on the players. If you look at every one of our linebackers and say every single one of them doesn't split the field correctly on a certain formation, they're not lined up in the right part of grass, that's got to be the coach's job. And we just do things that are not schematically correct. And you're starting in a difficult place. And your talent cannot always overcome that. So that's a long-winded way of saying I'm encouraged that there seems to be some changes. I'm very encouraged what I'm seeing with the secondary and the D-line. I'm very not encouraged by the linebacker situation with where they're lining up at, where they're going, how often they don't shed their blocks, especially a guy like Ventral Miller, who seemingly can't get off blocks, can't get to the right spot. And then Diabate, who's either making a great play or he's totally in the wrong spot. Uh, so, you know, a lot of question marks still with this defense. But... For the first time since I've been watching this defense, they did something different that was not the status quo. And I'm going to take any possible positive gain I can and hope and pray that against Alabama, we at least try to nut up some and and, and be aggressive in certain situations rather than just go back to the tried and true, stay 10 yards off the ball and give them whatever they want all game long. Yeah. Again, when you feel like you're doing something that is consistently suboptimal, anything else would probably be better. Let me talk about Hopper for a minute. I think he's a little bit a good showcase for what we're talking about. I still really like him as a player. When he gets the right beat on the ball, he understands where he's going. He goes from positioned where he is to stopping the ball carrier. The guy just stops dead in his tracks. He's like a lightning bolt to the ball tackles well and other times he looks like he does not know where he's supposed to be so that's really disheartening and like you said with Diabate it feels like a lot of highs a lot of lows now these are still young guys haven't played a ton of ball but I don't have a lot of hope that they're gonna magically improve as much as I would want them to so I don't know yeah, I'm not seeing the development there. And I think Hopper is a extremely talented player. And I thought he put a lot of good stuff on film on this game as well. For me, he did. And it's really hard to tell at times, is he in the wrong spot or is someone else in the wrong spot? But what's nice now is I can tell you, Alan, you can trust the D-line's in the right spot. You can start there. They're almost always in the right spot. Occasionally, a player will make a bad play, but generally, check that box. It's starting to look like the safeties are generally in the right spot, and so are the corners which now is is shrinking your cone of uncertainty to who that's left with. And I think that's no surprise for a guy that we mentioned last year. I was I was hoping that Robinson would have gone elsewhere. I just thought he hasn't put anything on film to lead me to believe our linebackers are really developing at all. That's a big statement to make. I know here I am sitting here off the field, not at practice. I love Hopper. I think he's got a lot of potential. I think this Florida well, defense has problem. a lot of potential. But I'm just not sure that I see him getting the proper instruction to be in the right places at the right time to, to maximize his skill set. He's having to succeed in spite of that. I mean, they're, I, I'm not sure, but they're, if not the highest rate 
in the running for the highest rated group on the team. And that's with them being weighed down by some guys like LeCedric Brunson, some of the older guys who are all the younger guys since Robinson has been here are very highly rated guys. They look and they look very athletic and they fly around the field. So we'll, we'll have something to keep an eye on. So just one last little thing here. Um, Perkins, you, he flashed for you on film. You've kind of mentioned, so you're still high on him. He I did love anything him. to disabuse you of. No, he, he, he did even better. Week. Okay. He's fantastic. If he's not, if he's not the starter logging the majority of minutes against Alabama, something is just wrong. I mean, if there was ever a more clear choice, we've said in the past, like try anyone else at star, try, try, try someone. He's clearly the best person we've seen play star in several years. And he's a smart football player and he is a really good defender. He's only going to get better. He got better this week. Is he perfect? No. Is he going to get beat sometimes? Yes. But that guy can play football. He has got to be on the field. It's blatantly obvious. So let's see. And I'll be the first person, Alan, to, to cheerlead from the rafters when anything is done well and it shows up on film. Not because I hope we do it because I like the strategy. I just say, hey, this person on film looks the best. Let's hope the staff sees the same thing. I would like for that to happen. And that means they got to put aside some of whatever they're doing over there when it comes to loyalty or who they think their guy is or whatever the case is. And again, I think Hopper is excellent. There's a lot we're saying in this conversation. I think Hopper's our best linebacker. I think he, he fills the gaps the best. He's the best tackler. He covers well. But there's still question marks, as we're saying, with the linebacker unit as a whole. They don't look as polished. That's my takeaway. Look at the linebackers. They do not look as polished they don't look as put together, despite what you said as being a very talented group, as the other position groups. And that's one of the most surefire ways to evaluate actual coaching. And we could say the same thing for Florida's receivers, Alan. Billy Gonzalez has done a phenomenal job every single year. Those guys are ready to play. And that's because he's doing a good job getting them ready to play. That's what good coaches do. So linebackers will be something, I think, are, that are going to be an emerging story for this Florida team this season on defense. So let's just end here. Anybody else you want to mention? We have to mention Zachary Carter. He's a monster out there right now. Again, interior, exterior rushing. He looks so powerful and fast for a guy his size. He's a real problem for opposing offenses. So just because he plays very well every week, I don't want to like just kind of forget about him, but he looked great again. We'll mention him every week he stands out on film. And Carter's a beast, 2.5 tackles for loss, total menace. I thought Elam played great in this game, covered well, had an excellent interception. The entire D-line was fantastic. Uh, Torrance, I think, is really emerging into a very capable and smart safety. He made a fantastic tackle on third down and 10 late in the game that could go unnoticed, but that's what you need to see out of your safety. Those are tackles that will define games down the road. Can your tackle be trusted as the as the free man to come downhill and tackle a running back when it's third and 10? Check, check, check. So I really like what I'm seeing out of him. I think he's emerging as a leader. He's in the right place all the time. Um, it's great to say that, Alan. It's great yeah. to talk about our safeties positively. So a lot of good stuff there. I think we have an issue, of course, at our other corner spot. I think Marshall has sky-high talent. He's just really raw. People aren't running past him. He just, he doesn't, he's, he can't, you can't be expected to come out as a five-star corner and have the nuances of the game ready for you yet. I think he's getting better at Because you're not game. challenged at that level in high school. You don't, no. It doesn't matter if your technique is good or not. No one's running routes like that. So I think against Bama, we have a real problem there. I mean, Marshall is the guy that should be starting and getting playing time. I'm happy that individually Helm improved. That's what I wanted you to take away as a listener. He got better, which is nice. 
But that's a real problem, especially against Bama's receivers. That is a real problem on that side. One day it won't be a problem with Marshall there. But for right now in this game, Bama's going to look at that and think we can have a lot of success there. All right, let's move to special teams. Not a lot to note here, really. Um, Successful extra points, which you would hope that would be true. Um, Continue to kicking short, though. Still not sure whether this is strategic or just ability this is what only thing we can do so this is what we'll do thoughts there yeah i i don't think it's strategic i think I if you're either. watching on film they even tried they tried both of them i think i don't think they want to be kicking that short and we somehow don't have a guy who can faithfully put the ball into the end zone it doesn't matter as much in modern college football in fact you could argue that our, our opponent's starting position is worse because we've been kicking the ball off but that's not Something when you're playing the Bamas of the world that you want to hold your breath every kickoff and think, uh-oh, we kicked the ball to the 10-yard line if we have one mistake. Well, you'd like to gone. do either. You would like it to be intentional, and you would also like it to be like, kick it out of the end zone on this one. Correct. So you don't have to every time hold your breath and think, oh, no, please don't return this touchdown on us or whatever the case may be. But it doesn't look intentional, something to keep an eye on. We still have no idea, obviously, about the capability of our kickers. They have not been in a position yet for that, which is why games like the Bama game are fun. Because you learn about your team. So we'll find out. Okay, coaching corner. Oh, man. Let's talk about Florida State, Alan. Oh, wow. So Florida State loses to Jacksonville State. Which, first of all, unbelievable. Yeah. Mike Norvell now trending far worse than Willie Taggart. Also unbelievable. So hold on, just real quick, to contextualize, we talked. I said this last week. The headline for me is that FSU doesn't seem like they're garbage anymore. And they didn't. No. Because you're using that frame of reference against Notre Dame, yes, who also pretty much should have lost to Toledo, yes, which will be our next coach, right? Corner. So, <laughs> so both of these teams are in. So maybe corners. this was reminiscent of the Texas Notre Dame game a couple years ago, where it was like great game down to the finish. People were like, oh, Texas is back because they beat Notre Dame. Turned out both teams to have a pretty down year. That could be the case here with Notre Dame and FSU. It didn't seem like, oh, maybe. Now FSU is on par with the top 10 team that both teams are going to struggle a little bit this year. Yeah, this is, it's hard. Like Florida sunk far when we, when we went sinking down and Florida state fans loved it. And they are, they have, they have said, you know, hold my beer and watch what I can do. And they have taken it to a new level, (laughs) but this was, this is baffling. So this is one of those games where you might escape with a win and your fan base doesn't like it and no one likes it, but you know what? You escape with a win. Life goes on. You make your football. People forget about it. It's fine. You'll just, that was ugly. There is there are six seconds left, Alan. It's fourth down and ten. Jacksonville State, who has scored fourteen points all game, is on their own forty yard line. Six seconds left. Jacksonville State, no timeouts. They're down three. They have one timeout. Oh, they have one. I'm sorry. They have one timeout. Okay, so six seconds left though. So even if you were to run like a ten yard dig, call timeout, you cannot kick a field goal from there. So Florida State's in no danger of worrying about them completing a ten yard pass, calling timeout. It doesn't matter. Like. Maybe they get a closer Hail Mary, but they're in no danger on this play of that happening, which makes this so curious. I am not a fan of prevent defense, but I am really a fan of prevent defense when it's the last play of the game <laughs> because all you're trying to do is prevent them from scoring a touchdown. That's all that has to be done here. I love man coverage. I love cover two man. It's one of my favorite defenses. Not in this play. Florida State elects to play not only do they like to play two man, they like to play two man under. Now, what that means, Alan, is their their underneath defenders, not the two safeties, are going to purposely play underneath the receivers. They're going to let them run past them and play underneath them with the safeties playing over top of them. So think of that being a sandwich. Okay, that makes 
no sense in a scenario where Jacksonville State has to score. Of course, on this particular play, Florida State, the under guy, lets him get run past, which he is the under guy. His safety is supposed to come over the top and make the play. The safety, inexplicably, I'm sure you've seen the highlight, sort of just waves at him and doesn't tackle him. If he tackles him, the game is also over. And then there's the other corner, I mean, the other safety who tries to come in and help and gets blocked, which is a great downfield block, by the way, by Jacksonville State. But when you watch the highlight in real time, I had to watch like three times. I couldn't really believe exactly. that there was, there was one safety. It looked like a first quarter play, which would have been fine in the first quarter. But you're like, wait a minute, did I see that correctly? Are there six seconds left? And what? There is no good answer to this. Like, this is something where if I'm a media member, I am having serious conversations in the Monday press conference with Mike Norvell. Like, please explain to me how this was ever a defense that could ever be run. It's pretty wild. It's I crazy. Mean, this is coaching malfeasance of the highest order. Now, again, I mean, Mike Norvell is not calling this defense. His defensive coordinator is. But ultimately, he's the guy responsible for putting that guy in that position. And you got to see, you know, they don't have any timeouts, so I guess he couldn't do anything about it. But when you get lined up, basically you have to almost yell, run backwards, what well, are you doing? it's just one call. You have a prevent call for that. Whatever it is, yeah. umbrella, whatever you want to call safe, and they just execute it. It doesn't even matter at that point in time. Just get back in there. There's there, He can't even, he's not even going to throw the ball 65 yards. Unbelievable. That that one timeout really spooked him. That strategically, I think they just totally They missed. overthought it. Yeah. And again, if the safety makes the tackle, you like breathe a sigh of relief, but you still in the film room, if I'm Norvell, go back and say, what the heck are we doing? This is completely false. And, and you can overthink it in football. That's why football is a great game, Alan. Is there's a million ways to do something and you can overthink it. All right. So Toledo, Notre Dame. This one, one of the classic ones we talk about every year. Toledo is down two, two on the road, hollowed ground in Notre Dame with a minute and 35 seconds left. Notre Dame has only one timeout. Toledo down two, Allen. Running back breaks free. He's by himself. If he falls down on the one-yard line, Notre Dame would have to call timeout. They could then run the clock down and kick a field goal, an extra point field goal, by the way, to win by one point as time expires. The percentages of even a college kicker making an extra point from the one-yard line are extremely high. Instead, he runs in the end zone, and then Toledo implodes as Notre Dame drives right down the field in four plays and scores game over. Should he have fallen down on the one, or are you in favor of him scoring there with a minute 35? Man, I of course I think optimally he should have downed on the one. I think if you're going to run any kind of analytical study, that's exactly what you should do. I, I don't know. I just don't know that they expected to be in that situation with that happening. Uh, yeah, it's, it's the wrong move, uh, and it sucks for them, and they probably know it now. And this is what's hard about football is, again, to bring Danny Warfel in twice on this podcast. You know, he's mentioned in his own playing career that there's times when you get in the huddle and you say like five times, look, get the first down, fall down, get the fall down, fall down, game to fall down. Guy gets the first down, runs, scores. And we don't know what happened with the Toledo coaching staff. We don't know if they said for sure go down. As you mentioned, it's a big moment. You don't expect to be in that situation. Perhaps you're not thinking strategically as you should be. You're not, you're not thinking that's the case, which brings me to this point. College football, they're employing all these analysts all the time. It blows my mind. There's not just a guy, like one of you at home perhaps, who's just employed to sit in the box, and your sole job is to watch the game like you watched on television and just occasionally buzz into the coach. Hey, coach, by the way, this is the scenario. You should probably take a knee here. 
That's it. Like really, it's valuable. And look, I've coached, right? I've played and I've coached. When There's you're coaching happening. and you're in the field, I can assure you it's not the same as watching on television. There's a lot of stuff happening. It's very easy to make some simple mistakes like that. But it wouldn't be for the guy who's just sitting there eating some chips, watching and saying, hey, do this. If I was a coach, I, I who love strategy, I would hire that person to do that for me just to make sure they're in my headset in case I just forget something or I'm having to talk to my quarterback for a while or I'm having to coordinate my defense or I'm having a conversation with something. I want to know what the situation is. And hey, let's make sure the team knows that they have one timeout. Any first down gives us a chip shot field goal. Let's not score. Let's give ourselves the best chance to win. Didn't okay. happen. No real coaching corners for the Gators. So let's move to our final thoughts. This is a largely subjective question here, but were you impressed with the Gators' performance just to kind of flatline, bottom line it? I was not impressed overall as a team. I was happy with, as I mentioned, a lot of the individual performances. I'm happy that we're seeing some positive steps with all the things we mentioned. I'm happy with the direction that I saw on film. As a team, you can never, and this is what I'm going to say, and I mean never, you can never be impressed beating an overmatched opponent. You should never be impressed because you just don't know enough. That's what I want to say with that. Auburn, are you impressed with Auburn winning two games by 62 nothing and 62 nothing? Is that impressive? Maybe. It seems like they're great at beating overmatched opponents. So I'm not dissatisfied. I'm not unhappy. I think you have to be careful because you can ride too high on these games and then Bama comes in and they beat you like a drum. You go too low, right? The reality is take the positives we take. I'm very pleased with what I see. I like the individual talent we have. I'm very excited about some guys that we have. I want to see now what we do with it. This is the week of what do we do with it? And and not that we're going to beat Alabama, but what do we do with it? And then I'll be able to get a better gauge of like, am I impressed with our start to the season or not? What do you think? Yeah, impressed is not the right word, but I am overall pleased, I think. Now, there's a lot of caveats around there, but... I think because this the narrative around Richardson is so interesting. That's right? the, that's the thing to be joyful. So uh, we we said last week we probably would just start Richardson this week. Oh, definitely. Unless there's something in. out of our unless there's factors out that we don't know about, right? Was it definitively wrong to have started Emory this week? I don't think so. Definitively wrong is a strong word. Right. Like it's a very clear Yeah. Like I think it was probably at some point definitively wrong to start Felipe Franks. Oh, it was Trask, right. It was definitively right. Wrong. Or you're starting Treon Harris or Will Greer or things definitively like that. Definitively right? wrong. So I do think there's, especially if you're taking the long view of Richardson, we talked about maybe you want to get if you really want to be Bama, you got to get him the most reps as possible. Where there is a narrative here, it's like let's continue to ease him in here, let's maximize him while still giving Emory a chance to just show that he can or can't do it, right? Once he shows that he can't do it, it's actually probably easier to make the switch than just, hey, I made a switch and everyone's like, this guy played like five snaps. Are you sure you want to do that? So yes, you would agree that maybe that you could yeah. see you see a logical path to have started. Well, he, here's what's crazy. And I thought a lot about this in the RV as I'm cruising in the, in the Washington State wilderness. I thought, you know, why is it so frustrating for me and for others with this quarterback scenario at Florida and Dan Mullen? Why is it so maddening? And then I thought about that. If I'm coaching, would I have potentially started Emory a second game? As you heard me say, no, but I would have considered it. He'd spent three years in my program. He had a really bad day. I'm going to I'm gonna pretend like at practice, Richardson's not way better. 
I have to feel like he is. I have to feel like he offers a much higher ceiling. And I'm a ceiling coach, but not everyone is. And that's what I'm going to say, that these are my thoughts. This is how I would coach a team. I'm a ceiling coach. Not everyone's a ceiling coach. Dan Mullen tends to be a little bit more conservative with his players. He likes the safe option when it comes to executing things and making sure they know what's happening and getting us in and out of plays. I'm different. But if I had a coach that subscribed to that philosophy and was handling, I think, the narrative correctly, I would not have been so mad that Emery was starting for one of the reasons you mentioned. Be very simple to have an actual thread that's, you know what, this guy's giving me everything. These are two kind of meaningless games. I'm going to split reps. I'm going to split reps pretty closely. That's very fair to Emery. And I'm going to let the film dictate, which is what I always do as a coach anyway, is look, hey, what you put on film in the game is what's going to determine whether or not you play. A lot of coaches are like that. So to me, if Dan is getting up after games and saying that, hey, look, here's the deal. I'm going to try to get them both snaps in both of these games, and we're going to look on film and see who our guy is. I would be like, you know what? Fine if Emery starts. Because what you said is true. It's much easier now. It's so obvious to make this change. It's even obvious for Emery that it actually makes it easier. It does make it easier than if you don't give a guy a chance in the game to prove that he's not capable. I love giving guys chances in games. That's my big thing. So it's really interesting that you brought this up, Alan, because that is a really nuanced but very important scenario. So what I don't like about it is how it's being handled with the words that are being described in the situation. That's what I don't like about it. Because really, it could have been fine. The exact timeshare we had could have been fine leading up to then Richardson, let's say, starting in Bambo. could have been fine. But it's so mind-numbing. To, to, to see what Dan did with Trask, where we talked about this, whatever Felipe Franks did, it was like, hey, man, he's really, you know, he's trying, he's doing this. And then Trask would let the world on fire. And the postgame conference is like, yeah, you know what, though, he missed a lot of reads. He's doing the same thing with Richardson. The guy comes out, perfect stat line. Hey, look, you guys don't know he's missing stuff. What is he missing exactly? What, what is he missing, Dan? And Emery, on the other hand, is throwing the worst picks you can imagine Oh, it's great. It's no big deal. The guy just buzzed into the flat. It's fine. I don't understand it. So this is what I think. I think I had the epiphany driving on the you know Pacific Coast Highway. I had the epiphany. I think Dan is a really caring, nice guy. And I think he's kind of one of those guys who falls in love with the rehab project or the guy who needs more work at the expense of the guy who's like a trustworthy baller. Because that guy's a baller, and he knows that guy's a baller. And so in a weird way, he gives too much attention and admiration and affirmation to the guy because he's sort of the rehab guy. That happens a lot. And it's admirable. And it's happening again. But that's not a good look when you're running a football team. And you're telling everyone that my job is to put the best guys in play. So, yeah, no, I don't think it was definitively wrong to have started Emory and to give him one more shot to remedy himself and do better and let him play himself out of the position, and let the position be won on the field. But after that second game, Alan, you explained to me how in the world he says what he says after that game. Yeah, it's really the, he's playing dumb, which everyone knows it. And again, I think I said this last week, there's two options. Either he Dan doesn't see it, which means there's a lot of question marks about his ability to understand what is happening around him, or he's just being disingenuous, and which is not fun either. And not that you have to come out and bury anybody or like, you know, tip your hand on what you're going to do. He talked about, you know, he said something about, well, why does anybody ask me who's the starting running back is? Well, okay. I, we can actually talk about that. 
But that doesn't really matter because you can play both guys and you should play two guys, right? But you can't really have two starting quarterbacks. And let's say we hadn't had the Trask, Felipe Fink situation. I don't think we'd be carrying the baggage into this one. We would probably ultimately expect him to play Anthony when he was ready. But I think there's this big fear that he's not going to play him at all, really. Or I, I don't know. what We don't know what's going to happen. So there's that kind of baggage, I think, with Florida fans that are going, which is, I think for most people, they would probably go, all right, Dan knows he's doing. He's going to play Richardson at the right time. Maybe I'll play him a little earlier. Maybe I'll play a little later, but it's going to happen. Right now, I don't know if it's going to happen. Now, I think ultimately it's just going to be so heavy that it's, it has to happen. But he kept Kyle Trask off the field for a long time. So I don't know. Yeah, you said that perfectly. And and that's the reality is we're looking at his history. And this is what's hard to separate with Coach Mullen is I want to be clear with this, of course. We've had a lot of fun, Alan, through our years of, of doing this analysis and, and you know making sure we try to bring you guys what we think are the analytical points. You know, We're not football coaches. Not in the, I'm not coaching a college football team. Dan Mullen is an expert on coaching offense. I want to make sure it's known that like Alan and I don't for a second disrespect really any of the coaches' actual football mentality. Like all of our coaches, including the ones we sometimes say, hey, these guys aren't doing a good job. They still know a heck of a lot about football, right? Totally. We, we, get the, we get the nice scenario to come in and kind of nitpick these things that could be tweaked about them. Which We're is doing always a lot why, behind the scenes that right. make it happen. It's always sure. great to be a consultant because you can just come in and look at what you should fix and that person has to fix it and you don't have to fix anything yourself. You're just pointing out situations. But the reason it's so frustrating is the history with which he's handled things, how he handled Franks and Trask, what happened with Trask and how he was so good, how he never really addressed that. He never really did. He never really said that's the case. He was going to lose to Kentucky. And now you get these these explanations where you want your leaders to give you things that like you can like hang your hat on and say, yeah, that makes sense. But it gives you some, like, like are Gator fans idiots? No, right? We just 2020, you know, 2022 U.S. News and Report, top five public school, right? A lot of there smart people there. And it gives you the, why is no one asking me about the starting running back scenario? And if I'm in the room, I want to say like, hey, coach, like, do you think that we are like completely stupid? That is not even a remotely a good comparison at all. And that's supposed to just like answer the argument. That's what I think is driving people insane and he won't stop doing it. And it looks smug and it looks foolish. And ultimately the problem is with what you said. If it was just a song and dance and he was always playing the right guy, then I wouldn't even care. Oh, great. Look, it's Dan being Dan. He says whatever he wants. But, he, but there's a real fear. There's a real fear here that who knows how long this will go on. Who knows? And now with the AR potential injury, maybe it's a card to play it much longer. I don't know, but I have beyond lost patience with it. It's extremely frustrating. And I don't think to this day that coach knows how much political and relationship capital he's like eviscerating every time he does this. Yes. And it would have been fascinating this week. Now the injury totally changes the dynamics, but that would have been the conversation all week. Now, if he's, if Richardson's hurt, if he's not taking the reps, you're most likely not going to start him. Right. No matter what, even if you're, if you're on this trajectory. So that I think puts a tamper on a little bit, but it would have been raging. And if he would have continued to play dumb about it, I think people would have just wanted to light him on fire. So it's a little bit of a reprieve. We'll have to see how it goes. Eventually this is going to overtake him unless he is either honest about it or does the thing everybody wants him to do. Now, again, the coach shouldn't do just what the fans want him to do. He know he, he is 
has privy to more information, but he's not all knowing either. And I think somewhere in the middle of that is where we have to land. All right, Alan, it is time to look at the games we picked recap, which is brought to you by BetUS. Sports betting season has already obviously kicked off. And if you need a sports book with integrity and longevity like BetUS, check out BetUS. Founded in 1994, it is one of the world's oldest online sport books known for its rapid payouts and excellent odds. I've had several of these now, Alan, because, of course, we've had several sponsors that have been betting companies, and BetUS's website is is legit the fastest one, especially with live bets. You can sign up quite quickly and easily at BetUS.com. Use our promo code GNATION125, that's GNATION125, to get a 125% sign-up bonus. You can also use crypto using our code GNATION200 to get a 150% bonus on sports. So GNation125, GNation200, we publish these each and every week in our show notes to get yourself a bonus on what you deposit. Uh, also, if you use one of those codes, you're supporting Alan and I as you support the show. We get $100 for each person that signs up, so it's basically like you're sending us a hundo bomb. So visit BetUS.com and sign up today. Alan, you slayed it last week. You killed it, as you seem to do every year. You jump out in the early season and crank me, and then I have to chase you down. Yeah, it was a nice week. Um, I won't lie. So <laughs> I don't know that I have a feeling for all these games, but um, a couple of them I felt pretty good about going into it, and that proved out right. Okay, the well, belated one. Give here. your record here. You wow. went eight okay, and three. three. Yeah, come on. You went eight and three. I went four and seven. You're now 14 and 14 for the season, and I'm 12 and 18. All right, Whoa. get it together, James. Whoa. You got to get back to 500 here. I'm going to run you down. Don't worry. All right. So the one, the belated one, finally, Louisville versus Ole Miss. That had a score on it. Ole Miss won by a lot was the point. They did. They covered. It was a 10-point spread. They smoked Louisville. At one point in time, they were up like, I don't know, 31-3 or something. But are you impressed with Ole Miss's start to the season? I think so. I'm ready to see them play somebody who can offer some resistance to what they're doing. But for sure, I mean, that that's a quality win. They're an exci- I think at the very least, they're a team to watch, which if you're an Ole Miss fan, you got to love that. For sure. Ole Lane Kiffin. All right, Texas A&M struggles at Colorado. They went 10-7. to Their starting quarterback goes down, but they were scuffling. Yeah, they lost They lost King in the second drive. And obviously, um, I'm blanking on his name now, but either way, he struggled all the way until the end. They got the win. Curious for Jimbo Fisher, who was hitting on a quarterback seemingly every year at Florida State. He had a guy in Mond who he liked, but I think largely was not as effective as maybe he could have been. And I don't know. Texas A&M right now doesn't look like the number six team in the country. Defensively, I think they're pretty stout, but they got a ways to go offensively. I'll give them a pass on this, but definitely something to look out for there. Wow. Uh, Texas gets dragged by Arkansas 40-21. It wasn't even really that close. A lot of people are saying welcome to the SEC, but it's a very good win for Arkansas. They look tough under Sam Pittman. I just want to congratulate you for picking opposite of me in Texas. As I said, it doesn't <laughs> matter true. what I do. And I said, I was, yeah, I was doing that for the sec. Uh, but is Sam Pittman. Come on, Alan. Uh, this is a heck of a coaching job. He's doing there in Arkansas. They look nice. I mean, you're right. I didn't have a feel for this. and I did just go against you, which was, I had the benefit of going. And, and Barry round. Odom, who's a great defensive coach is the D coordinator at Arkansas, having a lot of success thus far. All right. Pittsburgh. Does down Tennessee 41-34. Yeah, I don't know what to make too much of this game. All the, 
except for to say Tennessee is not there yet. No, they're not. And again, this is just a dagger to my heart. I want so badly for Tennessee to be really good, and every year they let me down. All right, this is a really fun game. Missouri at Kentucky. Kentucky wins late, 35-28. Fun competitive matchup there. Uh, very much so. Two teams that you've tabbed could be trouble for Florida, proving that they were trouble for each other. Uh, it will be interesting to see which one of these teams winds up with a better record when it's all said and done. Yeah, good win for Kentucky for sure. NC State goes down to Mike Leach and those Bulldogs in Mississippi State. 24-10. This is a good win for Leach. I, you know, I, I wasn't confident about this one at all. Kind of a gut feeling I said last week, and it turned out to be right. This is where I think if you're a Tennessee fan, you're watching Mike Leach and you're secretly hoping he fails. He's never failed anywhere he's coached. He's only been good because he should have been at Tennessee. And Tennessee would have had more athletes, more firepower. This is a this is a good win for him. NC State, as we said, I think had a nice result against USF. They fancied themselves. They were favored. Uh, Mississippi State winning with defense, looking competent. Again, not a threat this year, but I think if you're Mike Leach, you have to just be patient with him. He hasn't, again only ever turn the teams he's coaches at to be a winning a winning product. Miami survives App State here 25-23 App State very much could have won this game. Are you worried about Manny? Is the bloom off the rose? I think so, a little bit. I mean I, I don't think they're ready to fire him, but you definitely are looking at him differently this year. Correct. If you had the kind of visions that he was going to rocket ship Miami back to the top, it seems like maybe you got to press pause. Still on recruiting that. well. Yeah, not over yet, but you got to probably press pause on that. He's not to the stratosphere yet. And App State's a capable team. That was a, an eight-point spread for a reason, but Miami, maybe not where they want to be. Okay, Washington at Michigan. Michigan takes care of business. Doesn't look all that pretty. Washington is a mess. Michigan wins 31-10. Yeah, so Michigan upstart. A lot of people picked them to struggle this year. Two easy wins starting the season, but Washington is terrible. I think this is something, this is a tale, maybe a cautionary tale for Washington fans. So they have a great coordinator in Jimmy Lake, who is a great coordinator on defense, and he takes over as head coach. And it's hard to describe their program as anything but an absolute nosedive. And it's one of those things in life. You know, I know my dad would always tell me growing up that in the corporate world, which he, which he climbed decently high in, Eventually, you reach a point where you're just not capable of doing the job, but you don't know it until you do it. And right now, it looks like Jimmy Lake is an all-star D coordinator and potentially just not cut out to be a head coach. Too early to say that, but the signs are not good in Washington. Big win for BYU. Big week for BYU getting that Big 12 offer. They knock off their hated rival, Utah, 26-17. Huge, huge win from BYU. This was supposed to be a transition year for them, and Utah is supposed to be solid this year, and that, that that's that's a rivalry win they want right there. That, that's nice by them. Man, heartbreaker for me, heartbreaker for the clones. Iowa, who looks legit, just roughs up the clones, 27-17. Do you think that Iowa State's year last year was a COVID fluke? They returned every single player. No, I, I just think Iowa is actually really good. They're very good, I agree. And that defense for Iowa is legit. They, I mean, they're I think they have a very clear runway to the big uh yeah, Big Ten title game. And um I think they'll be tough for everybody. Yeah, they handled them in this game. Twenty seven seventeen came way late at the end, but Iowa was definitively the, the better team for sure. And then the game of the day upset Oregon takes down Ohio State thirty five twenty eight. Oregon looked tough. Ohio State looked, like we said, gettable maybe, like 
they weren't there defensively and offensively they're not there yet with their new quarterback. And you know who the OC is at Oregon. It's time to give my boys in love again. Joe Moorhead. Joe Moorhead. Another guy who just struggled mightily at Mississippi State. A guy that I loved, thought was a good and interesting hire. He's without a doubt one of the top two or three OCs in the country. He is extremely good in that role. That's a huge win for Oregon. Oregon fans fancied themselves as a, as a team that was a dark horse for a national title. They go get a win against a more talented Ohio State team on the road. Missing you, their two best defensive players, probably. Absolutely. Do you have questions about Ryan Day at this point? I don't know. I mean, this is a really good Oregon team. They're starting, you know, a freshman or a redshirt freshman quarterback. I can't remember which. It's not like they looked like out of sorts. I mean, I they're recruiting at a really high level. I no, I don't think so. And They're just is, in the national championship game. I was going to say, this is this is partly the curse of Nick Saban, right? Nick Saban is so good that if you compare your program to him every single year, you fall way short. And so if you're an Ohio State fan and you think, well, our recruiting is close to Nick Saban's, which is true, it is. It's almost equal. You are not a Nick Saban coach team. And any normal nobody person is. throughout history has these ebbs and flows, and nobody would have thought anything of it. Hey, we lost to a good Oregon team. No big deal. But because Nick Saban almost never does that, you kind of find all these elite fan bases looking around and saying, whoa, is it time to panic? So uh, certainly too early to say with Ryan Day. Obviously, all signs point to him doing very, very well. They lost a close game against a good team. Uh, but Mario Cristobal. Yeah, great is, win for Oregon. stock is rising there. Huge win for them to prove that they belong. And now we'll see what they do with the rest of the season, of course. And again, we're not going to talk about really, but um, USC loses fires clay held this is hot off the press right as we're recording this so man clear shot for oregon right to the pac-12 title game maybe a playoff spot too and and how i mean this is so overdue for them we talked about this when it was happening what are they trying to gain what are they doing and now you're firing him at this point of the season a good example of all the things we talk about on this podcast strategy matters so much alan to maximizing your program and what's happening Really poor leadership there from USC. This should have been done a while ago, and now they're going to waste another season and even more time. All right, Daytona Steve, his lock of the week was South Carolina at plus two. If you hear these lines and you're listening on Thursday, they will be very different potentially. South Carolina was plus two, and it actually swung to them being a favorite by the time you may have bet on game day. But he got that one right. South Carolina went on to win 30-27. or whatever the score was, as we'll see here in a second. Let me just take a look down the sheet. 2017, there you go. They won by three. Take care of that with a plus two. Lock of the week, check. Parlay, that was a miss, but the parlays, as Daytona Steve does every single week, Alan, are total Hail Marys, essentially, where you bet a couple of bucks, and if you win, you send Daytona Steve a thank you note. SEC roundup-wise, Alabama struggled with Mercer for a while. I watched every snap of this game. Mercer was a game a game opponent, despite the fact that Alabama beat them easily. Nick Saban was extremely frustrated after the game. All that rat poison. A lot of comments about how Alabama was riding high and wasn't paying attention and weren't listening during practice. So I'm sure Alabama will not have that problem this week. McNeese travels to LSU. LSU wins 34-7, getting their first win. Auburn blanks Alabama State 62-0, setting up their first real game this week. South Carolina beats East Carolina, as we mentioned, 2017. Is this a good win for Shane Beamer? or? I mean, I think for them, any win is a good win at this point. Correct. They were barely favored. In fact, they started again as an underdog. So I'll take that as an opener win. And then Vandy on the road at Colorado State after losing in week one gets a win. Game-winning field goal. For sure. That's great for them. 
I mean, the first week they lost really badly to like East Tennessee State or something like that. So not that Colorado State is any good, but for Vandy to get any kind of win, I think is good for them um, and good for momentum. We'll see. I mean, I'm not that I'm expecting massive improvement, but yeah, I'm sure that feels great for them. We've got notes from our producer here, be read. Uh, Lucas Kroll, you might remember him, the ginormous ex UF tight end. Yeah, I miss him. I, I wish he wouldn't have left. Yeah, caught a pass for Pitt there at Tennessee. His Pitt's now two and zero. And then we had uh, Umstead Sanders. I don't actually know how to pronounce his first name. Yeah, I think it's right. Trey Sanders' brother. Who but we basically it, took him to try to get yeah Trey. But but either way, he was actually on Jacks Jacksonville State's team as they beat Florida State. So that's pretty great. The SEC West, Allen, the SEC West. Just the West has as many ranked teams as the Pac-12 and Big 12 combined. That's wild. That's insane. So this is this is one of those things that we talked about. I mean, who's going to be seventh in the West? Somebody will be a pretty good team probably. That's tough. The West is insane. As we said when all those coaches got there, that is the NFL of college football. And then Evan McPherson, our boy. Hits a 53-yarder for the Bengals and then hits a game winner in overtime to give Joe Burrow and Cincinnati their first one of the season in the NFL. Good for him. Proud of him. Yeah, nice, because he had said afterwards that he never hit a game-winning field goal, to which JT Raymond on our thread had replied, yeah, it would have been nice if we would have made one of those for us. <laughs> yes, JT hating on Evan yeah, is a, of course. a long-running joke. But Evan, I think, is going to be one of the best kickers in the NFL uh, for quite some time, so good for him. And then News Allen, of course, I'm sure all of you know what has gone down with the Big 12 are you favorable to the idea of them adding UCF, Houston? Yeah, I think it stabilizes the rest of their league. UCF, Cincinnati, Houston, BYU. I think that w- those were the programs I would have tabbed. People keep talking about them. Are they going to be a Power 5 league? I don't think that's going to matter. If the playoff expands, They their champion will probably be high enough ranked to get in the playoff. And so that accomplishes I think what it does is keeping them from disintegrating for other people poaching them. They poached. Someone poached them, they got mad, then they went and poached somebody else. That's how it works. It sets up some really, really interesting travel situations, especially for yeah. UCF. Yeah. And you think athletic departments, travel, money, et cetera. I mean, almost every game they play is very far. So we'll see how that takes a toll on them down the road. But UCF has long fancied themselves as the crown jewel of the group of five, and now they are in a quote-unquote power conference. Although I would immediately say this isn't, there's tiers now. You have the SEC and Big Ten. Then the next tier of the ACC, Pac-12. Then the Big 12. Then kind of everybody else. Yeah. Oh, I would totally They're clearly that. below everybody else. But UCF fans will not tell you that. They will find ways That's to true. tell you that they have finally been given the recognition they so deserve. Too late. All right. Now, it is time, Alan, for the big show. Week three, Alabama is here in town. 3.30 kick. Bama's favored by 15 and a half. Does that seem low or high or right about right to you? About right. Okay. I think if it was higher, I wouldn't be surprised. That's probably on the lower end, though. That feels low to me. Yeah, it feels low to me. At first blush, it feels low to me, but we'll talk about why perhaps that line is the way that it is. Of course, last year, Bama national champions 14 and 0, and then UF 8 and 4, uh, as we know. Overview, Alan. Walk us through the the team. Who is their head coach? I can't remember. Nick Saban. Ever heard of him? Greatest college football coach of all time. One hundred sixty seven and twenty three. Just take that in for a second. One hundred and sixty seven <laughs> and twenty three. They are, I guess, technically 
second in talent with 12 five stars. I'm usually 12 and only 58 four stars. Of course, I mean, I think they could have whoever they want. That's largely symbolic, I think, at this point. Uh, they do have an edge in returning starters. They are they are turning a lot over. Obviously, they graduated, I think, like half the first round was Alabama players. So only 11, three on offense, eight on defense. So their offense especially is getting turned over, um, which maybe makes them feel slightly more vulnerable. I don't know if Florida will be able to actually do anything to that, but um, that's true. That's more than they turn over normally. And their typical turnover on their coaching staff as well. Bill O'Brien, you've heard of him, Penn State, Texans, his first year. Extremely probably overqualified to be a college OC, but there he is. Pete Golding is their defensive coordinator. So, the, you know, the Nick Saban rehabilitation, you know, system, Bill O'Brien is there to be rehabilitated and come out on the other side with a different job. So we'll see how long he lasts. But uh, definitely star-studded coaching staff all the way through. Except for Pete Golding, who's the the interesting sort of homemade, went to right. Delta State, kind of worked his way through up nobody colleges, got hired by Bama, and now is the actual defensive coordinator, which is interesting. Younger guy. Anyway, interesting. He's 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 an interesting yeah, guy. Yeah, but with Saban there. Oh, it doesn't matter. It's but it's just one really. of those kind of, you know. Sure. Yeah, sure. Homegrown guy. Good for him. All right, let's talk about Alabama, Alabama offense. So Bryce Young, a note here from B-Red, the highest Alabama recruit ever. Yeah, how about that? Wow. Basically consensus number one guy. Very talented guy, looks the part, obviously new. Uh, number 21, Brian Robinson, long line of Alabama running backs. He looks like the real deal. And the receivers, they they have... Not maybe the depth they've had in the past, but still some guys who really scare you. Jameson Williams, the transfer, and number eight, John Mechie, who was kind of, you know, the other guy on offense last year, despite being highly productive. So number one, number eight there. Um, you'll definitely notice them. They'll be running all over the field. Oh, yeah, hopefully not catching passes, but they will be running all over the field. <laughs> you know, on film, and I watched every snap of Bama this season, Nick Saban said it best. He said in his presser that, you know, Florida and Bama this this year are two entirely different teams playing each other. Right. Coaches will always say that, but that is absolutely true this year. These two teams are very, very different. Bama on offense still wants to do the same thing they did last year. They want to kill you with their east-west screens because they know they're a vertical threat. They run so many long developing vertical routes that they get away with running more very simple east-west bubble screens, tunnel screens, et cetera, because teams are worried about their vertical game. In my opinion, as we're going to talk about this, you cannot let them hit those. They feed off those four- and five-yard easy gains with their athletes. You have to deny them those. Uh, their wide receivers win one-on-one -on -one almost all the time, and that is why teams are stuck in a bad place. You can't just look at Bama and say, great, I'll play press man. You better have three or four guys who can cover every single one of their guys because if they have one guy that's just that much better than yours, you can't play man. That's a challenge, obviously. You can't play basic soft coverage behind them. They're running coverage beaters on every single play, even with Bryce Young. So if they see you're lined up and what's going to be a static drop cover three, they'll run a beater and they'll take advantage of it. You have to be more creative with your coverage behind it. Essentially, Alan, this Alabama offense 
tries to do the same thing that last year's Bama's offense have done and previous ones have done. They use play action for big plays. They use the hard count really well to get teams to jump off sides and they go vertical. However, they're not in the same hemisphere yet as those Alabama offenses are. In fact, on film, this one early in the season is gettable. They're gettable. They've struggled at times on film. So I thought Miami had a nice aggressive plan with their front seven, but they simply could not cover on the back end. But they were consistently getting pressure immediately in Bryce Young's face. I thought that's something Florida can look at. I think Florida's going to have an advantage here, Alan, as we get into kind of matchups with Florida's defensive line versus Alabama's offensive line. Their offensive line has been a weakness for them, not only in the pass protection game, but also the running game. And that is surprising. I think automatically, right, you and I would default Bama juggernaut offensive line, probably going to bowl Florida over, probably going to handle Florida's D-line pressure. The film says something entirely different. The film says that offensive line is an actual weakness right now for Alabama. And that shapes up to be a very interesting matchup, obviously, for Florida. Our strength versus their weakness. As far as Bryce Young goes, talented guy. He's got a good feel for playing quarterback. He's just not anywhere near yet where he would be or where he will be in the future. So he still tends to make one read. Uh, he does keep his eyes downfield nicely, but he's not making like the the Mac Jones level, the Kyle Trask, a blitz is coming. I'm going to stand here. I know where my weak spot is yet. Right. So Mercer had a lot of success running a defense we've only talked a little bit about on this podcast. But in, in essentially in high school football, there started to be a counter to spread. And also in the Big 12, Allen, where you'll run a three-high defense. And we talked about this last year with Arkansas. We've talked about it chronicling your clones of Iowa State. You will have a middle safety, as they call it. Mercer runs this defense a lot, and it gave Bryce Young incredible problems. Mercer stopped Alabama on the first two drives, three and out. And they really messed up Bryce's reading ability. Now, what I've seen in both the Miami game and the Mercer game is that he's not super comfortable yet if your pre-snap look is one thing and your post-snap's another, and you take away the vertical routes. He's not quite there to where he's going to hit those intermediate middle routes. So there's opportunity, is what I'm saying, for a well-crafted defense here against this Bama offense that perhaps has not existed in the past year or two. There is opportunity. Now, the real question, Alan, is do we have any confidence that Florida can do anything to make this inexperienced early in the season Alabama team struggle on film the answer is is yes I think we have enough talent that we could give them problems assuming we run a scheme that makes sense that's why this matchup is going to be really fascinating so I do think the impressive thing about Bryce Young is you know you mentioned Miami did get pressure but it didn't look like it rattled him too much. Like he's a big guy, big arm. He threatens you still every part of the field. So you still have to defend every part of the field. So this isn't a situation where you can just go, all right, we're going to, we don't think you can make these throws. Cause I think he will make those throws. If you make it easy for him. Yeah. This isn't the death star yet, right? They're not there yet. Um, I'm sure that they were scuffling against Mercer because they, I mean, who knows how much prep they did. Not a lot, I'm sure, because they could still line up and run the ball, throw short, do what they wanted to do. They adjusted. Good job by Mercer making it difficult for them. That's actually pretty impressive. 
Yeah, and they have some talented O-line guys, but they are replacing some guys. So I think this might be interesting for Florida. We're not ready yet, but I think you're better off playing Alabama now than in game 12. Oh, absolutely. So, And I think on film, what's interesting is I can create a lot of, I can craft a lot of tactics and strategies that I liked against what I saw on film from Alabama. Now, ultimately, there's questions that we have to answer. If you're Bama's offense, what are you targeting? You are absolutely targeting Helm or Marshall. Hands down, for sure, you're going right after them. You also probably feel like you can get our linebackers out of position on those east-west screens. Bama uses pre-snap motion better than maybe anybody in the country. A, to confirm the read, so they'll quickly get to the line. They don't run tempo, but they get to the line fast enough that they can run a motion guy and then change the play. If they see that we are lined up incorrectly, they're going to throw a really simple east-west screen and get 10 yards. That stuff is something Florida has been killed by. But as we've done so often in this podcast, Alan, imagine we could wave a wand and we could play sound defense, line up sound, make things difficult for them. Uh, I still think that they're prone to being able to, to play press man against with pressure because if you can play press man and you can get pressure there quickly, those windows become small. If you play press man and don't get home, with your pressure, you're in trouble against Bama. But one thing Mercer did that I thought Florida could take a note from is Mercer, when they dropped eight, they would always drop that middle safety. Now, Florida doesn't run this stuff, but it's not that complicated either. By basically making sure they always had two players on top of the vertical routes, Bryce Young, again, would want to look vertical. And if Florida's D-line is able to deny those vertical shots, so really take away the east-west and deny the vertical, what I'm saying is make Bryce Young beat you in the middle part of the field. And he is capable of doing that. But so far on film, that's not what he wants to do most. So the Bill Belichick and Nick Saban school of football is make them beat you with something they haven't shown they're comfortable doing yet. That's where I think the ticket on Florida's defense lies is make sure that if they beat you, it's going to be those eight to 15 yard intermediate routes over a linebacker's head into a certain window here that is not, and this is the second key on, that is not the first read. If Bryce Young's first read is to throw a dig route, he's going to hit the dig route. But if his first read is to throw a post route and then he comes to a dig route, he's not comfortable making accurate throws there. That has been something that's shown up time and time again. Couple that with Florida's ability to get pressure, which I expect us to be able to get pressure against this Alabama line, which is way different than what we talked about last year. And I think Florida could give Alabama some real problems on offense. I think that's a, that's a legitimate narrative that shows up on film in this game. Of course, the question I will leave you with is, is Florida capable of creating a game plan and executing it in a way that makes sense? And that's something that just has never happened in the Grantham era during the Dan Mullen time. We have never come on this podcast and said, this was the right game plan all game long for this opponent. So does that happen? I don't know, but if it does, yeah, there is there is a real a real world here where Florida could give Alabama problems on offense. I could I could could see that. I could see pressure, whether it's a sack, fumble, forced interception. What it feels like they might pivot towards is a much heavier run game, and I don't know that our linebackers are capable. You know, not maybe not having Ventrell Miller in this game, which we can talk about how we feel about that, but it's one less run stopping defender. Our other linebackers are much lighter, much smaller. We haven't really been teams have been able to run on us a little bit, and maybe that's a little bit by design. But 
if we get into those situations where they're running the ball effectively, I think play action would kill us. And not that Bama's the traditional play action heavy, heavy kind of team, but they've seen what we've seen. I think that they're going to come out and look to run the ball effectively and do some of those East West screens, as you mentioned, that it might not matter that they can't beat us deep consistently. Oh, I think that's the reality is that the, the East West screen, the easy hitch routes, the basically the automatic by alignment completions where if I'm playing quarterback, I get the play call. I look and I know by alignment, my routes open. That can't happen. That's likely to happen. And that's what you're saying. And that's a problem. This Bama team has not proven they can consistently run the ball on predictable running downs. Past Bama teams could just go to that, like you mentioned. Hey, it doesn't matter. First and 10, we're going to show you we're running, and we're going to run it right down your throat. They have not been successful doing that, not against Mercer or against Miami. Now, Mercer basically was playing a drop eight pass coverage, and they were kind of hard-headedly passing it, and they went to running it, and they tore him up. But Florida poses a different challenge. But like you said, there's this level of me that says, man, on film, this is a team that you can game plan for. This is not a team where you're like, how, I don't know how to stop them. We're just in trouble. We got to gamble. There are things that can be done. But as you said, keep an eye on the easy yards. That's an early key to the game. The easy yards that Florida gives Bama, where just by alignment, they take the snap, bingo, it's four or five. If that's happening with a certain degree of consistency, then Florida will not stop this Alabama offense. There's too many playmakers. One missed tackle leads to huge plays. And that's going to get them going. You have got to stop their kind of short game that opens up those vertical routes. Okay, let's talk about the Alabama defense. A talented group, especially at linebacker. Christian Harris, Christopher Allen, maybe a name that you've recognized, Henry Tuotuo. I think, I don't know if I said that right. The Tennessee transfer. Kind of criminal that they got him as well. Brutal. Brutal. Um, Very sound. Excellent guys. Uh, Will Anderson, though, maybe their best defender? Question mark. They have so many guys left the game with a knee injury. Maybe we'll play in this game. Maybe not. I don't know if it really matters because they have so many guys that they could potentially run out there. There's not the, you know, in terms of star power in the secondary, I don't think there's anybody who's really emerged yet, but there's everybody out there is a four or five star guy. So. I don't know if Florida can actually take advantage of where they might be deficient, but they're talented everywhere. Yeah, this this is the Death Star of Alabama's team this year. They will go as far as this defense will take them. Bama's offense is going to get better and better and better. And I think if it comes down to a Bama Georgia game down the road, it's gonna it's gonna be whose offense is better. Georgia's defense looks sensational. So good I can't wait to talk about it when, when we get to profile it. But this Alabama defense on film, again, Miami is not a good offense. They're one-dimensional, but they do project sort of like we do, Alan. This Bama defense already in week one and two, super, super sound. They rotate well. They tackle well. They're incredibly competent. I think they're looking at their matchups in this game, and they love them. I think they love them. Last year, Nick Saban said, I was basically not sleeping, thinking of how to even try to stop all of the guys Florida had. I think he's sleeping like a baby looking at Florida's <laughs> team saying this team is too simple, too one-dimensional. There's no chance they're going to be running all over us for a million yards because Alabama's linebackers are so good. They're so good. They're sort of the perfect 
the perfect design defense to stop a running team like ours. You have to have linebackers who can cover in space, which they can, can read the field really well, which they do, and can plug holes. And they all do that so, so well. And I don't think Florida has proven they have the ability to challenge their secondary, which is where they have the new faces. Their front seven is almost all returning. That's a problem. So what I'm saying is I think both of these teams, their defenses, I think, look at the offenses and think, I might be able to do something here. I think Bama looks at Florida's offense and thinks, I might be able to really, really do some stuff here. Very well said. Um, It's funny because they're all so good and so talented. There's not like an obvious weak spot that you would go, here's where we're going to attack. There's no deficiencies. There's, there's guys who haven't played a lot, and maybe they could be had. We don't know that yet. No one's really challenged them yet. Miami couldn't do anything, anything. And I, unfortunately, I feel like we're in kind of the same boat. Now, the wild card, of course, is we, this should be his nickname maybe, is Anthony Richardson, where you just maybe can't game plan for him because he might do something really off script, off book. That's not what we're going to see from Emory Jones. He's not off script, off book. He's maybe he's on the wrong book, but he's definitely playing by some kind of book. Um, yeah, I don't know. Do you, if you're going to design a game plan, is there something that you can come up with Florida's kind of ingredients that you think could even be more than marginally successful? Well, first I think you have to game plan knowing you're going to face a sound defense. So, Obviously, against Bama last year, so much of what Demolin drew up were favorable matchups. So we would get some pre-snap motions, which would which would allow Kadarius Tony to be one-on-one with their nickel. That's just a matchup, and then we'd make them pay. And that's what I'm saying by sound football. They're not just going to—we'd make a few shifts, and all of a sudden they give you like a, a easy three-on-two up the sideline. That's not going to happen. So one, you prepare your team that, hey, these are going to be hard yards. Number two, you cannot— get into third and long against this Alabama team. You just can't do it. It's going to be a recipe for disaster for us. There's no doubt that if DeLance is playing, they are keying all over him. They tend to, and Bama's unique with this, Alan, they tend to put their better pressure linebackers and even their better defensive ends oftentimes on the right side, which I personally think is is on the left side, but the right side of the quarterback, right? They attack the right tackle, which I don't think Nick Saban would do in the NFL, but I think he does it in college because a lot of college teams, the right tackle is far weaker Especially than the left tackle. pass protection. Correct. So even though the blind spot matters, all those things matter in college football oftentimes, it's just get the quarterback off of his spot at all, and the stuff breaks down. I think they're licking their chops for that. But Florida has to know that. Okay, so if we're going to play DeLance, which I would like to see us try someone else or at least rotate, we're going to need to max protect that right side. We're going to have to do something to help there because Bama's going to beat that side of our offensive line secondarily. Bama will pattern match. There are pattern matching rules where smart teams, and you see this in the NFL every single week now, Alan, if a team knows you're going to pattern match in this situation, you just run a route combination that beats it, that confuses it. Is Florida capable of that with either Richardson or Emory Jones? No way. The ball's got to come out on time. It's it's a high-level, difficult read. I don't think we're there yet, but that's an opportunity where if Dan Mullen can scheme something up that in practice all week, they can hit it, hit it, hit it, hit it, and get that look in the game, they can do it. It doesn't look good on paper. Florida's offense versus Bama's defense. And it doesn't look good on film. So it's sort of a, a match of both. It doesn't look good right now. Now, if you give me a different quarterback, you give me Kyle Trask, perhaps he can challenge your secondary. Miami had guys running open in the secondary. 
But that doesn't matter if your quarterback is getting hit one second after he takes a snap, <laughs> right? right? It doesn't matter that a guy beat his corner. So I think that that is their weakness is possibly the back end. They have new faces there. No one's tested them yet. Can Florida test them there? Maybe, hopefully. Who knows? But this is the side where I think it heavily favors Alabama. And I think that's why we see the line at 15.5 is I think Vegas looks at the talent and says it's close. Vegas looks at the returners on offensive defense. And I think they look at it and say, Florida's going to have a hard time scoring more than 17 points in this game. And there's a lot of ways Bama scores 30-something. A lot, whether it's turnovers or it's whatever the case may be. It's just a lot of ways that happens. And that's kind of your 15 and a half, um, I think, at this game. So a lot remains to be seen. You've got a really great note here that I'm looking forward to talking about. Chances we see the kitchen sink. So that expression, they threw everything at him, but the kitchen sink, maybe we should throw that too. You know, we, we talked about it's largely like, oh, you're going vanilla. Is it Florida not playing good because they're just being so vanilla? I don't think that's been the case. But we have not run anything tricky or exotic. We've not broken anything out to say, hey, you got to watch us do this. If I'm Florida, what are you saving it for? Maybe the Georgia game, but you have a chance to play Bama and knock them out. Every kooky thing you can do, every kind of like, okay, we've shown this tendency, tendency we're going to run this tendency breaker to try to get a big play. Uh, that could be really fun. That's what you do when you're the underdog. The, the favor probably won't do. Well, let's talk about a GNFP exclusive here, Alan. Okay. So I got a screenshot from a friend who had sent a, a quote from Dan after the game, which had basically said, I haven't debuted my two-quarterback offense yet which is interesting. And if I do, then there's nine other players I have to make a decision on with who's playing on the field. Now, why is this most interesting? Well, as most of you know, I've obviously coached a professional flag football team. Uh, I coached and played on one that had most of the Gators back in that time. And the system that we run or that I favor in flag football, which is different than tackle football, is a two or three quarterback system. I'm not going to get into the depth or details of those things other than to say I have it on decent authority that some of those concepts have been pitched in the past to Dan Mullen. Now, let this be known. I did not invent these concepts, right? My flag football offense is a combination of air raid and other things. The whole point is there are some people that I've played with and done things with that feel strongly that, hey, if you have two athletic quarterbacks and you want to play both of them, perhaps there's things you can do that go beyond the kitchen sink. And so... I think we chronicled this well. You heard the story Danny Warfel told of how Dan Mullen will watch any football film anywhere and try to get ideas, which I love that. I think that's important. Something he could do, of course, is to run an offense that involves two quarterbacks at the same time that's actually an offense. And again, I won't go into it in depth here, but oftentimes we think of kitchen think, we think of a trick play, we think of like a one kind of trick pony thought. But in the flag football world, multiple teams will run entire offenses with two quarterbacks that have a system to it, just like more what than you just see. one play. Correct. It is a system. It is a read. It's a pre-snap and a post-snap, and it's the same exact thing as having one quarterback that could absolutely be done in tackle football. It's something, of course, I've discussed with friends and others for many years. So, is Dan Mullen alluding to something like that? That'd be wild. I have no idea. That would be fascinating. I would love to see it. Uh, that'd be bold and, and, and something incredible. And, and for the record, Emory Jones would be a great second quarterback, as you'd call him. A Delgado guy is kind of the name for that. But a second quarterback in flag, he's perfect for it. Big arm, very athletic, good receiver. You don't need to make high-level reads. 
Who knows what's going to happen? But I think it's fun. Your question is fun because at the very least, Alan, this is the game. You're at home. If you beat Alabama and you're Dan Mullen, you are announcing yourself. Your fan base, everyone is behind you. This is a signature win. And if you're an offensive genius, which I, I totally agree that Dan is, perhaps you have something waiting for Nick Saban. Perhaps there's something there. And, you know, we will see if, if uh, you know, he debuts a, a kind of a flag football style, three, four, five plays, six plays, who knows, whatever the case may be in this game. And if he doesn't, fine. But if he does, it'll be fun to discuss it next Yeah, that'd week. be amazing. Because, again, there, enough people have at least discussed it with him. I know that he's had those discussions about those concepts. And when he mentioned it, I thought, oh, that's really interesting. I wonder if uh, I wonder if that's what he's alluding to. So stay tuned. But this is the game where you throw everything out there. You hold nothing back. You try everything you have. You die on the hill. You don't just line up and run the ball at Bama. You have to find ways to move the football. And since we are the inferior team, talent-wise, as well as I think, you know, if Emory has to play the whole game quarterback-wise, you got to do things to make up those points. We'll see. That'd be really fun. Why don't you take us to the comparisons? Special teams, we don't know yet for either team. Neither one has had any kind of moments. We're going to find out in this game whose special teams are, are better than the other. Uh, I'd probably give the edge to Bama, given Florida's kickoff scenarios. We'll find out. Penalties are a push. Both teams are decently penalized at this point. Nick Saban not happy with Alabama's penalty performance thus far this season. Uncharacteristically a little sloppy. Turnover margin, huge edge to Alabama. This is this is where I think the game hangs between these two teams. Um, Florida has yet to show they can play a game without turning the ball over multiple times. Bama basically doesn't turn it over and they generate turnovers. And then, of course, if I had to ask you, Alan, who do you think has a higher time of possession, you would bet Bama and you would be right. They once again have the ball a lion's share of the time in their football games. It's a staple of Nick Saban. Whether they're scoring a million points or not, they tend to have a decent TOP. Okay, injuries play a huge factor this week. I'll get to the headline one here in a second. Uh, Ventrell Miller, questionable, may or may not play. It looks like Delance is, will be probable. We don't know. Elijah Blaze didn't play in the previous game. They were very unclear about whether he might play in this game. The corner uh, recently transferred in. Anthony Richardson, we talked about his hamstring. No idea if he plays or not. Can we win this game if he does not play? No, not based upon what we've seen from either team on film. The, the realm, I mean, can we win? Let me, let me rewind this. I'm going to get mail. Yes, we can win. It is possible to win. The percentages of us beating this Alabama team without him are to the levels that are tiny, and you're talking like an upset of historic proportions. With him playing, there's enough that we've seen, especially if he was fully healthy. Let's indulge right. ourselves for a moment. There's enough from him that all it takes is, is belief in your team one, right? Richardson gives your team a belief. That changes how your team feels. And secondly, if he's capable of scoring at any given time, anywhere on the field, that changes the game. Well, also creates an incredible amount of variance. Like you just don't know. You don't know. And don't a know. complete wild card, I think – it would take them a while to figure out how do we actually want to defend this guy. No one knows yet. Yeah. He's a total unknown, which is an enormous advantage. Huge. There's no way you can really prep for him. You can have an idea. We're going to, we're going to do this, but it's going to go out the window probably when he does something you don't expect. And man, I would love to have him 
fully healthy for this game, even at like 50% of the snaps, just because it would create such a huge amount of variance to this game. I feel like I kind of know what's going to happen unless we do some really unexpected stuff. If we just play it straightforward, I feel like I kind of know. So it's a super bummer. Now I get to the end of the season. It's like, well, we lost to Bama. Richardson starts. We won all of our other games. doesn't really matter. But for this game, it feels really big in the moment, and it's a real bummer. Yeah, you just love to be at home having all your guys there right. in the swamp. These are memories. It's fun. Football's fun. You know, we take it seriously. We break all this stuff down. But at the end of the day, you, you want to be there watching your highlight reel player come of age, struggle, not struggle, whatever. You you want him to have that chance. You feel for him in this moment being a Gainesville guy. We play Bama at home once every, what, 12 to 14 years. Right. It doesn't happen often. So a lot of stuff there for him. It's a bummer for all of us. I think we all feel a little bit more subdued if he's not going to be the weapon, which he's just not going to be. Again, all news right now is that he's going to practice and that he avoided a strain and that everything's okay, but you're not going to open that up. He's not going to be running 100%. He's not going to be bursting the same way. So a lot of what would make him as a young player very dangerous uh, is going to be off the table. Now, a year or two from now, he may be far more... Think of Dak Prescott in the NFL now, cerebral, throwing the ball around, et cetera. But at this current stage of his development, he's such a threat with his legs that you can use that to keep the passing game more simple. So a lot to be seen here, but obviously, Alan, huge bummer not to have that sort of ceiling lottery ticket where you're not really sure what you're getting, but there's a chance you win the lottery. And I think that's the key. With Emory Jones, it doesn't seem like there's a chance you win the lottery. With Richardson, there's a chance that you have the winning lottery ticket. You may not. You may lose 100 times in a row, but you could. You could potentially win the lottery there. That would be fun. Okay, well, we'll hope and pray that he is fully healthy, although that doesn't seem likely. B-Red asks us a question. Do you feel worse going into this Bama game or last year's Bama game? I would say definitely worse. I, I don't think I was expecting us to win last year, but I... I liked our odds. What felt worse is that we lost the LSU game and it just kind of took some of the shine off, even if we did win. With that collection of talent, I was like, this will be fun no matter what, just to see what we do. Uh, if Richardson doesn't play, I don't feel great about this one. I feel worse, for for sure. If Richardson was playing, I would have felt worse, but a different kind of worse. I would have felt like hopeful and fun. We talked about that Bama game last year in at length. I was convinced that Florida could have won that football game with yeah, a couple well, yeah, of tweaks sure. on defense. But pre-game. did you feel that way going into yeah, it? Yeah, we talked about okay. it. But we well, we felt hopeless because we didn't think any defensive changes would have been made. But we felt like in a world where we just do a few things differently, that's a game we could have won. And I stand by that, period. And so this game feels like there's a lot of stuff it feels like that has to go right for Florida to win, despite the fact that I really think that Alabama's offense on film offers a lot of opportunity. It's hard to win in college football without a quarterback. It's really, really hard. And right now, even with Richardson, who we both love, we still have no idea what his consistency level would be like if he played every snap. We don't have a clue. It's electric. It's fun. So it's just impossible to know, but clearly I think you have to feel like it's less likely than what we faced last year, despite the fact that was one of the greatest teams of all time that Alabama had. This one is not that case at this point. All right, keys to the game. Well, I think you're going first this time. And I'm going to go first. And this is interesting. I'm going to leave out the the stuff I wish we would do from a coaching standpoint, because that's I, I'll give you something that's just a measurable key. And one is going to be the number of third downs we have that are longer than third and five. 
third and five and under, I think we can be dangerous. Um, if it's longer than third and five and a lot of our half of our third downs are that we're in trouble. So we need to keep our third downs to beneath that number. So I think on offense, that's important. Uh, I could say turnovers. That's the obvious one, but I'm going to stick with that number. I think that number is key. If Florida can keep their third down numbers to third and five and shorter, and the majority of them are, they have a chance on offense to at least score some points. I think on defense, it's going to be very, very simple to me. Um, we're going to have to limit Alabama's, let's call it yards after the catch. I'm not confident that we're going to take away their East-West game. I'm just not. If we limit their yards after catch, so if we basically force them to have a lot of air yards, I think our defense can be successful. If they are able to catch short passes and gain five, six, seven, eight yards consistently, we're, we're going to have a really hard time stopping them. So we've got on offense, third downs less than five yards. And on defense, we've got yards after catch. Those are two really, really good ones. I have a similar one on offense. I was thinking about yards per carry. If we can get north of five, which is big, that means we're we're dangerous running the game. We're really effective. That's going to create the scenarios that you were talking about, which means we have manageable down distance. If we're under four, I don't think there's any way we can win this game. So it has to be that we are very effective running the ball. We're controlling it. We're picking up manageable down distance. We're aggressive on fourth down, things like that. Defensively, um, you know, turnovers are obviously key and sacks are key. I don't want to be, you know, that simple with it, but it really feels like we're not going to win the game unless we create some turnovers. It's going to have to be the defensive line winning the day for us. So let's maybe instead of sacks, do tackles for loss because that means we're in the backfield. So I want to say if we, we're going to have to have a lot maybe six and a half tackles for loss. And those have to be on key downs. So I love it. I mean, that's true. And I think Florida has a, a, a huge chance to be very successful there. Cause again, Bama struggled to run the football. Florida's defensive line has been absolutely menacing to overmatched opponents, but I have reason to believe they're going to do well in this game. And that's going to be, I think a really great stat line to follow. Can we put Bama in third and long? Because they're also inexperienced and it will be a, a similar problem for them. Whereas last year, both Mac Jones as Bama and Kyle Trask's Florida, it was like third and 10 and it didn't almost even matter. They could convert that on you, no problem. These two teams, not going to be in the same hemisphere there. All right, score to the game, Alan. You go first. I gave my first key. You give me the first score here. The Richardson factor looms over this very, very large. I'm going to give you my prediction as if he doesn't really play or is very limited. Maybe they run him out there for a couple of plays and then he throws the ball rather than runs the ball kind of a thing. So I think 38, 13 and that that's a bludgeoning. That's not going to feel good. Um, I don't like saying that out loud, but that feels like, roughly the score for me yeah that's that's amazing i don't know how this happens every single week i kind of alluded to it earlier uh, but my score is 35 13 i don't know how florida scores twice in this game and this is largely because i just don't think that richardson if, if he, and i think richardson can throw the football like i've said i've probably been the perhaps the earliest champion right. out there on record 
saying, I think this guy has what it takes. But he's just too young, I think, to be in the presence of mind to play with a hamstring that's kind of hurt and not be thinking about it all the time. Uh, that's going to mess you up. I don't think Dan Mullen's going to give him a chance to drop back and take a million snaps, especially with a hurt hamstring. So that means what can Emory get done? And this is what I want to say. I've got 35-13. You've got 38-13. Obviously, both of us don't expect Florida to to even get inside the point spread. Um, This feels like a Debbie Downer scenario. You know, Emory, Emory is a guy who is capable of moving the ball down the field if we get favorable first read look. So if Dan Mullen can craft multiple plays where Emery can take a snap and throw it to his first read, which he's still not even great at that. That's what Felipe Franks was good at. But let's say he can just get enough of them. And this game hangs around long enough. I think the score could be much different, but I'm, I'm expecting this game to sort of be a slow burn 35-13. Right. I don't think it's not going to be like it's 35 to nothing at halftime or it's it's 27 to three or something. But I just think it's hard for me. And I think it's hard for you, Alan, to see this Florida offense consistently scoring against this Bama defense. That seems like a tall order. And look, it's Grantham on the other side. It's not hard for me to imagine Bama scoring in the mid-30s against us, given short fields, other situations, turnovers. It's just kind of hard to come off these numbers, I feel like. Yeah, and I I did bake in kind of a defensive score there, too. Sure. Bama typically gets one. That that would put it to the higher end of the 30s, right? I think we can maybe slow them down just enough that they're not like lightning fast beating us that that that's a conceivable scenario but it's really about us scoring you know and again i would love to predict this game with a healthy richardson because i think that creates maybe that that score gets a little closer and it gets a little tighter you got a young younger team in bama maybe you can have some stuff happen so i i'm going into the game not like, oh man, we're gonna get crushed, and I'm like sad. I, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens, actually. Um, but I, my hopes are not high for a win. And let's talk about to conclude the Bama analysis here, or, or prep rather. Let's talk about the right way to view this game. We talk a lot about this in these games. This is a big game, but this is actually here comes a big claim. This is actually a meaningless game as far as Florida season goes. This is not the one that's going to rule you out from anything, right? And and if you're looking at what should you be looking at as a fan, would you like to beat Alabama? Of course. Is this the year that preseason-wise you were supposed to beat Alabama? No. But you'd love to see more of this individual development that I've seen on film. I want to see some of these guys we've highlighted play with the big boys and see what they look like. That can give us a reason for hope as the season goes on. And that's probably the biggest thing we're getting robbed with with Richardson is this was a chance to see what does this dude look like in this situation? And even if he plays, we're not going to know. You can't know because he's not himself yet. But there's a whole lot of season after this. So if I'm coaching, you're telling your players, we want to win this game. We're going to die on the hill to win this game. But you also need to be dying on the hill of improving your performance. This is a chance for you to measure up. See where you're at. Put stuff on film. We've got a whole season in front of us. Our season will not be defined by this game. Truthfully, it will not be. But you better play like it is. That's our goal is to get out there and win it. And so I think as a fan, even if Florida were to get beat 35-13, Alan, but I go back and look at the film and I see individual performances that are really encouraging, I could feel very differently about how the rest of the season goes with a guy like Richardson emerging in that starting role. And just picture yourself in this moment when Richardson comes in the game, there's this level of like anything is possible. 
And the human element, the momentum factor of football is so important. And that's what a guy like that does for you. He builds belief in your team. Let's get one stop. Let's make one thing happen. Let's get this guy the ball back. And I think that is what took a significant body blow with this injury that Richardson has. A significant body blow amongst these players. It's like, man, our guy, our Superman, he's mortal for this game. Maybe some of that belief is not quite there. A little bit of the wind out of the sails. Well, we'll see. We will indeed. All right, let's look at the slate here. There's more games than just Florida, Alabama. Uh, UCF, there we go. UCF playing Friday at Louisville. UCF favored by seven and a half. Louisville got beat like a drum by Ole Miss. What do you see here? I'm not super confident in UCF at Louisville here. I don't have a feel for this Louisville team, what they're actually like. Um, So I'm going to have to go with UCF here. I'm going the same way. All right. Uh, Nebraska at Oklahoma. Oklahoma favored by a smooth 22 and a half. Oklahoma has been a little perplexing. Um, But again, it's trying to imagine Nebraska scoring enough to keep pace with Oklahoma feels unlikely, even though, you know, other teams have kept it close with Oklahoma. I'll go Oklahoma here. Yeah, I don't trust Spencer Rattler at this point to play consistently. So I'll be on the wrong side of this with Nebraska if that helps to prove that he can stop throwing three picks a game or a bunch of errant passes. So until that happens, 22 and a half is still a little too high. Number eight, Cincinnati, three-point favorite at Indiana. A nice game here. Yeah, the with Indiana playing so poorly thus far, the bloom is off this rose a little bit. Cincinnati's not been their best yet, but um, I think defensively they've still got enough in there that they're going to cover this. I have Cincinnati covering here as well. Virginia Tech at West Virginia. West Virginia favored by two and a half. This would go in the category of who knows. Question uh, mark? Yeah. Number 15, Virginia Tech yeah. at unranked West Virginia? Yeah. I I wouldn't trust. This is, again, Jekyll and Hyde, Virginia Tech probably, but I'll go Tech. I mean, yes, this is one of those ones we'll revisit, but I'm also going to go there. Michigan State at Miami. Michigan State 2-0 playing pretty well. Mm-hmm. Miami's favored by six. I don't like this Miami team. Um, I don't really love the Michigan State team either, but they feel like they're going to be maybe blue-collar enough to punch Miami in the face. That's probably too much of a cliche, but I'll, I'll go with it. Miami's played two hard games in a row. Michigan State has not. This is like amp up time for them. I feel like this could be tough for Miami, as you just mentioned, emotionally all game long. Georgia favored by 30 and a half over South Carolina. Huge number there. Yes, for a conference game. Is JT Daniels playing this game? Unknown. I think leaning towards yes, but unknown. 30 and a half. That's massive. That's Alabama type stuff. I don't know. Um, this is if JT Daniels plays in this game, I, I think they can hit that number. If he doesn't, I wouldn't necessarily want to go with them. Um, I wouldn't bet this regardless, but I'll go Georgia. Why not? I'm going Georgia as well. I think Will Muschamp wants South Carolina to feel the pain of letting him go, <laughs> exact some revenge, shut him out. Georgia wins like 48 to three or something. Um, Virginia at UNC, Virginia free falling, UNC. Question mark? Only favored by eight and a half here. Well, Virginia looked pretty good. 
I don't know. Um, give me Virginia here. I like it. I like it. UNC. Yeah, and I didn't mean Virginia free falling. I meant UNC free falling. Uh, I was jumping ahead there. This feels like Mac a Mac Brown special, and I'm also taking Virginia. I'm not going to trust this UNC team until they prove to me they're trustable. I don't buy it. Tulane at number 17, Old Miss. Old Miss, 14 and a half point favorites. Tulane, of course, very good. Yeah. Very good football team. Give me Lane, though. I, I think they're rolling offensively right now. Okay. So you're taking Tulane here? No. Oh, you said give me Lane, as in Lane Kiffin. All right. Yeah. You can, have, you can have him. I'm also taking him. I'm riding this Lane train. All right. Uh, number, number 19, Arizona State, favored by two and a half over newly minted and ranked team BYU. Number 23. BYU. I haven't seen anything from Arizona State yet. They're a total mystery to me. At BYU, getting points. Give me the. Agree. Me the, Agree. Whatever they are. Give me Bring BYU. Me Let's go. What's their mascot? Uh, the Cougs. The Fighting Mormons? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. The Cougars, right? The Cougars, you're right, yeah, I think. Come on. Cougar. Uh, Florida State at Wake Forest, mm. minus 6.5. Wake Florida, Forest. Yeah, Wake Forest, by the way, is favored by six and a half. Wow. I mean, if you can't wow. beat Jacksonville State at home, can you beat Wake Forest on the road? Can you lose by less than six and a half? That's the question. <laughs> this is unreal. I I kind of want to take Florida State here. I'm taking Florida State here. At least to cover. Yeah. I'm just I'm not gonna catch you if I pick all the same picks as you, but I have to pick what I believe. All right, Fresno State at number thirteen, UCLA. UCLA favored by ten and a half against obviously a talented Fresno State team. B Red has upset alert here, but I'm gonna go against them. Maybe I'll regret that. I'll take UCLA. I'm also all over UCLA. I like it. All right, number twenty two Auburn, game of the week at number ten, Penn State. Penn State favored by six. Auburn's a total mystery with Brian Harson. You know, Penn State's offense, I don't know if they're going to be able to generate enough points to play with Auburn. Now, they're going to, Penn State's defenses look really great, but I'll take Auburn here, I guess. I love this line for Auburn. I love it. I'm also here for Auburn. I think Penn State's got that win, but man, they survived 97 plays. Their offense couldn't move the ball. I'll take Auburn in six points here for sure. All right, Daytona Steve's week three picks. Allen, he's got the tasty parlay. He's got my Maryland Terrapins favored by seven and a half over Illinois. He has Cincinnati at three or three and a half over Indiana. He has Pitt favored by 15 over Western Michigan. He has Bama favored by 15 and a half over Florida. Iowa at 22 and a half over Kent State. Georgia, he took the Georgia one at 30 and a half versus South Carolina. He has Auburn, the one we like a lot at plus six versus Penn State. He has Old Miss at minus 14 or 14 and a half versus Tulane. If you hit all of those, the odds are 169 to 1. You can make yourself a nice bit of cash. Again, those are sort of your lottery tickets. His lock of the week is Georgia over South Carolina. That's funny. He took South Carolina to the other side last week. He did, and now he's going against them. That's a bad omen. My lock of the week would be Bama versus Florida, and that's terrible. I hope that doesn't happen, but if it's the James lock of the week, I'd be all over Bama at 15 and a half. Hopefully I'm wrong. I want nothing more than to be wrong with this week's prediction from either one of us. I would love to come on the show and talk about how great Emory Jones is, how amazing everything is. Whatever it took, however it happens, I would take it. Hopefully that happens. All right, other items here, Alan. Well, Arkansas rushed the field against when they won against Texas. Uh, Florida famously never rushes the field. Uh, would you want us to rush the field if we beat Bama this weekend? I would love to rush the field once in my life. It feels like an amazing thing. But 
us be no not in that situation it's not right anymore we would have to be terrible for like 10 years and then do it i also was not down with arkansas rushing the field beating a texas team that is i mean who is texas right now that's but I their, love the concept. Their rival, though, they don't I get to know. Play. Old, I mean, I didn't hate it, but like, I do want to rush the field. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I won't do very badly, but like beating a, it doesn't feel right. Well, it's like Florida. We're we never should rush the field That's the because problem. we should never be an I underdog know. enough at home. I know this is verging on that, <sighs> but I, I I still would not be in favor. If you gave me a vote in the stands, do we rush no, the field or not? No, I say no. I think if we had like a decade of suckery, like really bad suckery, like we fell off the grid, like what Nebraska is happening with right now. Nebraska is a great example. Like if you're in Nebraska and then you all of a sudden beat like number one Bama and something, I'm rushing the field. It's been forever since I've been good. Or you're Tennessee. Yeah. You're Tennessee. It's been 20 years since you've been good. Fine. You've reset your clock, but we're not in that boat, but I still love it. I mean, I love people rushing the field, even if they did it. And I'm not a huge fan of them rushing versus Texas. It's got to be a lot of fun. It's got to be great. They're going to get fined like crazy for it, but good for them. All right. Bureau wants to know real quickly here. We don't probably won't exhaust this, but name a college football team that AR doesn't start for. I mean, there aren't many. Well, there's a lot of cornerbacks that got turned over. There's not like a Trevor Lawrence out there. That's the thing. That's what I was going to say. Is it some years? There are many because you have a junior senior guy who's just further ahead with making reads. Case in point, like if Trask were still on this team, I would not be clamoring for Richardson to start, despite all of his oozing talent. But this year, I mean, who's the top quarterback in the country this year? Great question, JT Daniels. Like there isn't, there's not someone you immediately go to. No. So it's like okay. And without us being a practice and not knowing, you know, it's hard hard to know exactly what we're going to do with that. But I mean, I mean, it, I think Clemson really likes their guy, but obviously yeah. he didn't light up the universe. No, he didn't score. Bama looks, obviously loves Bryce Young. Yeah, but. yeah, looks pedestrian. But you know, I mean, you don't know. Like you watch Bryce Young on film; he's very unpolished. He looks nice. I mean, he's got a lot of things. He's got. Don't I'm not at all dogging him, even even remotely. But if you look at him compared to Trasker or you know, Mac Jones last year, even though I, I obviously myself said, Hey, they didn't ask Mac Jones to do a lot last year. He was doing a lot more than what Bryce Young is capable of doing right now. And Bryce Young will be capable of doing a lot of stuff very soon. I don't know. I, the heart of the question is that it's weird that he's not starting for us. That's he, the point is that like, it's you could, you could find ways to, to put him into every starting lineup based upon what we've seen, but he's like clearly not the starter for us. That's fun. Anyway, I don't know, be read. Good question. You guys can think of that. There's plenty of schools that have starters, yeah. I think, that would be ahead of it. And and obviously, you don't always just start a guy based upon potential. Like right. Top saying. of mind, you know, that's hard. But I think the point of the exercise is that he's exceptionally talented. Yeah, exceptionally. So what you've seen on film, he, he has been, I think it's safe to say, let's, let's end this podcast with this. If you had to pick a sensation of college football two weeks in, it's Anthony Richardson. Agree. I mean, hands down. It's not even really a contest. There's been some good players. He is like far and away the guy that you're going to talk about. That's how good this guy is. But still flying under the radar because Florida hasn't played any notable games. Right. But like everyone has noticed him. He gets a helmet sticker on college game day final where the announcer basically is like, this guy has to be the starter. He's a sensation. You've got Dan Orvlosky. You've got, you know, you've got Jordan Rogers. People joke my twin commenting on him. Like every person that sees this guy play is engrossed with his skill set. Except for seemingly Dan Mullen, who came out just a few minutes ago, Alan, and basically said, let me tell you why perhaps Anthony Richards is not starting. So he drops back, he blows a protection, 
He blows a hot read. He runs around. He misses another read. He gains 10 yards. You think he's awesome. You know, I've been coaching quarterbacks for a long time. I know what I'm doing. I don't go to Shans and ask for medical advice and help or tell them what to do. I trust them to do their job. I know what I'm doing. So he just wants to continually make it harder and harder and harder for people to say, yeah, Dan, you know what you're doing, of course, but why must you continually, I don't know, make it so hard? It's a storyline that we will follow on this podcast. We'll follow it this week on Saturday. Of course, on behalf of Alan and I, thank you for listening to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. Check out the YouTube videos, which will be out breaking down, if you haven't already, of course, the USF game. So much on tap for this weekend, Alan. You and I will be in the stadium cheering on the Gators. We're hoping for a win. At the very least, there are so many things to watch for this weekend. We will see all of you. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.